Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm assuming that I think I think we're ready to rock and roll right now. This is great. Uh, Jesperson with you at home for day two of Real Talk from Home. And Samuel G. Brooks is uh, is steering the good ship. Uh, my intrepid co-pilot from the Real Talk studio. Morning, in beautiful everyone. Central Edmonton. How are you holding up today, pal? I'm doing all right. It's OK. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, uh, yesterday was a little rocky. We kind of got through it. I've had time to digest <laughs> some of that stuff. And I think like me, like a lot of people's like I kind of relished the chance to take a second crack at this. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Well, we, we've we've made some we've had a, a we've, time has been on our side and that we had more than uh, than a few hours to sort out what our plan was today. And that and that means that uh, we were able to make some quality upgrades. You've got a real so, microphone. I've got a real microphone. We've upgraded uh, one of the units in front of me and we've got a great show. And it's a good thing because uh, we know that there's going to be a lot of interest in what we're talking about today. Um, we're bringing uh, some guests in this morning <clears throat> that we've been looking forward to hearing from for quite some time. Blake Schaefer, an economist out of the University of Calgary and Joshua Rhodes, uh, who's a researcher and an energy entrepreneur out of the great state of Texas. Of course, Texas has had its fair share of struggles over the past couple of weeks, uh, to say the very least, <clears throat> Daniel Smith and I talked about it when the former talk show host joined me on Monday on the show. And uh, she obviously um, has her own strong opinions about wind and solar. That's very evident. And uh, and I asked her about that, as a matter of fact, if if when she writes uh, newspaper uh, opinion, editorial pieces, op ed pieces like she did, whether or not, you know, her goal is to essentially bury wind and solar. That's the impression you get. The impression that she's she's kind of given up on it. She's she's declared the death blow there. Well, our guests today, I think, are going to take a bit of a different tone on this. Uh, Blake and Josh talking about what I think to them will be will be meaningful ways of analyzing the susceptibility, the climate susceptibility, the infrastructure susceptibility of of renewable energy, how it fits into the overall plan. We know that that Texas ignored warnings for quite some time about its grid. Um, so what went into the issues in Texas? We're going to talk to somebody, as mentioned, Joshua Rhodes is there looking forward to a great conversation. It's pink shirt day. We're going to talk to a police constable out of the city of Calgary that's been doing a lot of great work uh, in uh, working to end bullying. I think that's going to be a great conversation. And today as well, Elise Stolte, uh, a really interesting new project on behalf of the Edmonton Journal. She's working. It's called Groundwork, as a matter of fact, the initiative on ensuring that seniors uh, and, and other uh, population demographics are in the know as much as they can be when it comes to vaccination, COVID-19 information. It's a great project, and that's coming up a little later on today. Plus, we're going to talk to a PhD researcher who's focusing a lot on, on uh, oh boy, I'm already out of my depth, and I haven't even started introducing him yet, but, but aerosols, how these viruses spread, all these types of things. Uh, things that we'll want to consider. For me, uh, if you didn't tune in yesterday and if you're wondering what's going on, the, the reason why I'm coming to you from home is because we've had a bit of a COVID scare. A contact of mine last week uh, tested positive. Uh, I found out on, uh, Sam, when did I find out? I found out on uh, Monday, right? Found out Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon, yeah. And so we did the show uh, from home uh, yesterday. We're doing the show from home today, uh, of course. Uh, now, I'm excited to tell you something. I'm excited to tell you that we received test results at one o'clock in the morning uh, by way of text. Uh, I had a test along with my wife and my son 
yesterday. That's Tuesday at 11 o'clock Mountain Time at 1250 Mountain Time. So just about 13 and a half, I'll call it 14 hours later, we received test results. I have uh, tested negative, which is great news. Uh, I know Sam was relieved to hear that, uh, as were a couple of other people that, that we work close to. It's, it's interesting when you go through this exercise uh, when this is something that impacts you. And uh, and of course, we recognize as well that many people have, have not been that lucky and the test results have been very different. Um, but when you've been through this, you start to realize how quickly something like this could spread and how easily you could inadvertently be uh, somewhat of a so-called super spreader. So it's been a bit of a wake-up call, but our family breathing a sigh of relief. Now, we're not completely out of the woods uh, the way that this works, we're I'm going to continue to isolate. Uh, we'll continue to bring you real talk from my home for the remainder of this week. And then uh, if everything works out how we hope it's going to work out, I'll be back in studio with Sam coming up next Monday. Um, hey, Brooksy, in the, in, in the midst of everything that happened and in the chaos of yesterday, and there, there were some of these technical challenges, et cetera, et cetera, we completely glossed over something. Are, are you the type to do you keep notes like in a day planner? Are you a person that, that always pays keen attention to look I, him, he's checking his papers, well, I was about he's to checking say, his I, notes? I, I, I keep keen notes, but I don't know what we're talking about right now. So I can't, you know, I don't quite have a leg to stand on. There was a, there was an anniversary that 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 we that we just glide, we just skipped right. Oh, we just my God. You were right. Yesterday. yesterday was the 23rd. Yesterday was the three month anniversary of Real Talk. Three months of and Real Talk. Uh, and. Yeah, and I didn't actually even realize that until yesterday. I was doing a little work here at home, and I I was uh, actually filling something out, filling out a form, and I filled out the 23rd of February, and of course, the 23rd will jump off the calendar for both you and I. I went, man, oh, man, has there ever been a lot that's happened through our first quarter, we'll call it here, on Real Talk. Sam, it's been an awesome to have you here. understatement of the day. Holy man. <laughs> an, un an understatement of the day. Uh, we're ready to go. Our, our first guest is, uh, in just a second, going to be checking in uh, from beautiful Stockholm, Sweden. We're going to take a look at why uh, our uh, Real Talk podcast took a long time to get to a lot of your devices. Here's the thing, had nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our software. That It actually appears as though uh, podcasts around the world are under attack per se. So Stephen Brogarth, I mean, they keep an eye with, with Podicon and the Podboard 100. That's their business, uh, is monitoring podcasts, seeing who's getting the big downloads. They do it all. Think of like basically the Billboard 100 for podcasts. That's what they do. And you can follow them on Twitter at Podboard 100. Well, he was he would reached out to us trying to figure out if, if we were aware of the bigger picture issue, what was going on. We said, hey, I bet you because there's a bunch of real talkers that were contacting us yesterday going, do you happen to know where our podcast is? It hasn't reached us yet. It usually does by this time of day. We had no idea. So Stephen's going to join us in just a second. First, though, of course, we want to remind you that each and every day, our very proud presenting sponsor is Bitcoin Well. And this has been a huge year already for cryptocurrency, not just because of where the numbers are at, but also, of course, because of how many people are talking about it. Bitcoin Well, big year for them as well as a company. They're getting set to go public, which will have big implications. And we'll learn more about that through this year. But right now, if you just want to learn more about Bitcoin or, hey, if you want to get in on it, but you want to go through a way, you know, you could trust somebody that you could talk to, bounce your questions off just like I do. You'll find them at Bitcoin Well. They're under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson.
You know what I think happened there, Sam, is that uh, Ayla Brooke and the sound men, they, they didn't drop off the beer for you this month, did they? That sounds about right. Yeah. This is yeah. my uh, my my subtle way of getting back at them <laughs> so, <laughs> by, by having the wrong the wrong button triggered on the intro. <laughs> we don't. We, we don't care. You know, you, you guys don't you guys don't drop off beer for the Real Talk Beer Fridge for Sam G. Brooks. And then and then the next thing you know, you, we're not playing your song in the opener. That's the way it goes. Let's figure <laughs> out why so many of you were waiting on the Real Talk podcast and, and probably on other podcasts that you listen to as well. Stephen Brogarth is the managing director of Podicon and the Podboard 100. He joins us live from his home in Stockholm, Sweden. Welcome back to the show and thanks for making time for us. Sam, we'll get the audio figured out. Yeah, we'll get that figured yeah, out. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Hey, hey, brother, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Um, I'm doing. I'm doing all right. Thanks. I firstly wanted to, to, in the words of Trump, congratulate you on your positive, <laughs> negative test result. Yes, thank you very um, much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's the dog. Um, so, yeah, we. Uh, I saw you tweet yesterday that uh, you were having issues getting your podcast out. And it had happened to us the day before. We, we use a platform called Buzzsprout. Um, and you use a platform called Podbean. Right. Um, and it's, it's actually happened to, to two other platforms as well. And everyone's sort of waiting to see if it's going um, to happen uh, to, to various other platforms today. Um, so, Stephen, hang on. What's yeah. what's going on though? Like when you say what's going to happen? Like were we? I, I kept seeing uh, people online using the word attack. Are podcasts under attack? Is it hackers? Like what's going on here? Yeah. So the attack it, it's it's called a distributed denial of service, um, a DDoS attack. Uh, the most simplistic way of explaining to it is is um, if you imagine a business that has a receptionist, um, and that receptionist is really proficient at answering two calls a minute, uh, every minute of every day. And those two phone calls go through to the right people so that the business gets the right information. All of a sudden, that receptionist is receiving 2,000 calls a minute, uh, 1,998 of which are basically prank phone calls. So not only can the receptionist not answer all the genuine calls, it also then can't distribute the, the correct information to the rest of the business. So the whole thing shuts down. Um, that, that's in very layman's term, what a, what a DDoS attack is. And as I said, it, it happened 24 hours earlier to Buzzsprout who, and, and I noticed with Podbean as well, who were really exceptional with their communication to, to the people who use their platform. Um, so what would be the motivation for, for a person or a group <laughs> to do something like this? Is, is it just a disruptive event? Is there some sort of a, an end game? Uh, if it was just one, you would put it down as, as potentially a, a sort of prank. There's quite a lot of prestige within the hacking world for doing stuff like this. I, I, I personally think it's kind of the lowest of the low thing to do. Um, but 99 times out of 100, the, the, the drive is money, right? It's, it's a blackmail uh, operation. Um, they sort of threaten that they will continue the DDoS attack until you pay a certain ransom. Um, there's a very soft report that's come out about that today, which it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, uh, Estonian gentleman uh, named Jesus uh, 
apparently has done this attack asking for 1500 euros to for his mum's medical bills but to, to do that sort of attack on on four platforms of this size it would have cost him more than 1500 euros to do it anyway so so there's something else going on um and and it's i mean this is where it kind of gets interesting and and trying to figure out who or what or what, what is the motive um one thing you could look at is who is on Podbean. Obviously, maybe someone wanted to get into Ryan Jesperson's data. Um, yeah, I've, I've been starting but, to make a short list. I'm, I'm writing it in red <laughs> lipstick. I have, I have a few ideas of who it might be. No, I mean, but, but you know, realistically, we don't know who is on there. You know, people like Ted Cruz have podcasts. Uh, people like Hillary Clinton have podcasts. Um, it could be that. It could be a competitor trying to disrupt the platforms and be like, you know, you can't trust Podbean or Buzzsprout, which I, I said on Twitter um, to both companies, you know, categorically that it's, it's a ridiculous, if you know how the tech works, if, if you understand it, then it can happen to anybody. So, so the only thing they can really do is deal with the problem and communicate with their, list, uh, their, their customers, which they did. Um, and to suggest that, or to, or to get cold feet from a platform because uh, for 12, 16 hours they, they had this issue um, is ridiculous because it, it, it could happen to anyone. It, it really, if people have money to spend, there's no platform that you couldn't do this to. Yeah, well, and for, and for us, it's just an interesting uh, point, you know, to, to consider. I mean, for the most part, circumstances outside of our control, but it's it's one of those things where we encountered it as a business yesterday and spent our afternoon sort of trying to figure out or trying to get to the bottom of it. And uh, and of course, we reached out to you. Hey, Stephen, before we, we let you go, what's something mm. in the podcast world or the, every time we talk to you, we'll learn something interesting. Um, what's a, what's a storyline that you're keeping an eye on right now with the Podboard 100? Well, you, you know, interestingly, it's it's there could potentially be a link between the two things. I, I've been commenting a lot recently about how, particularly in North America, if you look at um, if you look at the very top of the charts, uh, when it comes to let's say the ne the next twenty twenty four election, it's becoming clearer and clearer that that Fox News and CNN they're not going to influence the result. Uh, it, it's going to be new media networks like uh, there's there's a group of three brothers called the Midas Touch. Uh, who are very pro-Democrat. There's uh, the Daily Wire. Um, and, and it's these, these kind of small upcoming independent media houses, which, which are really going to influence things, I think, more than mainstream media. And again, this is actually the, the host of our podcast. This was James's sort of conspiracy theory. You know, he, he, he thinks that it could well be a Murdoch or... Uh, oh. other mainstream media that wants to show that podcasting is not a stable platform and that it's, you know, cowboy land. I um, love it. We'll go with that. With news. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I, I want to be part of it. I want to be part of If, if I'm going to be part of any conspiracy theory that involves Rupert Murdoch, this is the one that I'll be a part of. Uh, Stephen, it's always good to see you, man. And we, we know that we cut into your evening here. We really appreciate you making yourself available. No Keep problem. up the great I work hope, in I the Podboard 100. I hope the kids weren't too loud. Yeah. Thanks, Bye. buddy. Appreciate okay. that. Bye. Yeah. And so uh, again, you can see what Steven and his team do. They do great work uh, with the podboard 100.com. It's where you can see which podcasts are trending. Obviously uh, most downloaded, most listened to most engaged with, they've got a great formula and he's, he's uh, spelled that out 
to us in past. Stephen's given us a really uh, interesting sense of how they do uh, what they do, et cetera. Uh, what's going on over there? What is what am I seeing right now in my monitors? This is um, uh, this is uh, a pretty interesting bit of subject matter. Sam, did you happen to check the Podboard 100 yesterday? Uh, I, I didn't actually, I was yeah, sort of, I was, I, I went down the, uh, I went down the rabbit hole of the communications on the whole DDoS attack thing. Cause I was, yes. I was trying to understand it. And so I, yeah. I, I know I was on the podboard side at one so time because they were talking up. about we it. We got yeah. beat up yesterday. Oh, we got boy. beat up bad yesterday. So I, so I can't, uh, I can't in good conscience cause these are daily rankings, um, which is I think what in part, what makes them so interesting Uh, But typically we can say with a bit of a swagger that we're Canada's most listened to daily news podcast, if not number two, typically we'll be in the top three. Uh, Real talk is currently, to be honest with you, everybody, real talk because of yesterday's shenanigans, we're ranked the 25th podcast in Canada right now. I know. But I'll tell you what, three months ago when we were starting up, if you said, hey, you'll have a top 25 podcast in Canada, I think we would have been okay with it. I think we might have been all right with it. So, So for one day... You know, we'll hang out in, in, in the 25th spot. Sub. Are, are you saying we've we've already flown too close to the sun? That's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I hope that's not I hope that's not the case. I hope that we're just getting finding stronger SPF <laughs> so we can so we can buzz the sun Top Gun style uh, as many times. It wasn't Top Gun. Isn't there supposed to be a Top Gun 2 coming out, by the way? Yeah, but why? That's what do you mean? Why? I, I love Top Gun. I, I do. And and Top Gun can just remain this iconic 80s fighter pilot movie. Like, I don't actually think Top Gun made now would be as exciting. I don't know. OK, I love this. Our, our, the, the real talkers that are watching live on YouTube are going to get to see now who which guests are in the waiting room and when they're ready to go. These are some of the, the interesting things that we realize as we now workshop Real talk from home as I come to you from my house, of course, Sam in the Real Talk studio. Um, I've got some emails that I want to make sure that we get to today. Uh, if you're watching or if you're listening to this either live or later, maybe you're you're checking out our podcast from the Prairie Provinces. Uh, if you're from the province of Alberta, you know that tomorrow is going to be a big day, uh, budget day. And so today, some of our content is there. Some of you have proactively uh, gotten ahead of the story, like real talkers are want to do, um, like Lindsay, who wrote me just a very powerful email about budget and priorities. And we're going to get to that in just a second. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading her email and others. Many responses, obviously, still coming in to some of the guests we've featured on the show this week. And so we want to make sure we get to those emails. The show's going to move quick. Um, this is a great time to remind you that the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, very proud of the 2021 Jeep lineup, but they're also the home for Ram. And if you're looking for Dodge Ram pickups, you're not going to find a better selection literally in the province of Alberta than you will at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Their teams work together to make sure that they find the truck that's perfect for the job you're going to do, whether it's a quarter ton, half ton, of course, which is the real popular Ram, that 1500 all the way up to the one ton, 3500 and beyond, whether it's a fleet, whether it's a small business, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have you covered. Also a great time to remind you that you want to circle your calendars if you're living in the metro Edmonton region, you're going to want to circle your calendars for March 5th. That's when Friesen Brothers is opening its 15th Alberta location. I don't remember the viewer's name, but somebody sent me a note and I want to give them credit. They said, Jesperson, you stepped in one the other day. You said that Friesen Brothers is opening their first location in the Metro Edmonton region. They said, not true. They said they got one in Stony. They've got one in Fort Saskatchewan. Both of those probably qualify. And I, and I read the comment and I thought, you know, 
you're right. So let me say this. Freezer Brothers' first ever store in Edmonton opening March 5th. For more than 60 years, they've been Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned, and I encourage you to check them out. I guarantee it's going to be worth the trip. All right. You notice what I'm wearing here? I'm rocking the pink shirt today. Every member of our family is, and so is our next guest, Constable Tad Milmine of the Calgary Police Service is also the creator and the founder of the internationally recognized charity Bullying Ends Here. Uh, Tad actually created the charity himself after uh, learning about the tragic suicide of an individual we're going to ask him about about 10 years ago. And given Tad's own experiences of being locked in a basement growing up, wanting to make a difference in young people's lives, he's now traveling the world, sharing his struggles, growing up with abuse and mental illness and struggles with his own sexuality while emphasizing his resilience and the importance of reaching out and holding on to dreams. Constable, welcome to the show, and it's great to have you here. Happy Pink Shirt Day to you. Thank you, Ryan. Same to yourself. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. Tad, did I pronounce your last name correctly? You did. Okay, perfect. How did this all, I mean, your story, uh, personally, I know that you share this, uh, and you've shared it in front of thousands and thousands of people. It's a remarkable one for a whole bunch of different reasons. But but how did you get to the point uh, where you are here today working as an advocate in front of so many young people? Well, I mean, I always have best describe it as it started by accident because this isn't anything that I ever thought I, I would do. I mean, naturally, I'm an introverted uh, individual. So to to have thought, you know, 10 years ago that I'd be standing in front of thousands of individuals at a time sharing my life story, things that I wasn't even willing to admit to myself for many years, that that uh, it would be unreal. But basically the trigger for me was late October 2011. I had just finished my shift with the RCMP, who I was working with at the time in BC, uh, flipping through the headlines of the news. And one headline caught my attention. It said, Ottawa teenager takes his own life because of severe bullying. And I remember reading that article that evening about uh, about a young man named Jamie Hubley, 15 years old in Ottawa, that was a, a, a figure skater for many years, openly gay for his last year of life, and um, relentlessly bullied, tortured, and in fact, we'll call it what it was. It was assaults. It was it was threats. It was harassment, and um, he struggled to the point that he couldn't fight anymore and, and took his own life. And I remember reading his story and and something just triggered inside of me it started a fire that has never gone out that that i want to um i don't want to change the world i just want to change just one person's world if i can let one person know that they're not alone that there are others out there that either have lived living or may down the road live similar experiences that it's okay to reach out it's okay to speak up it's okay to um to say i need help then for me, that's 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 my goal. I, I just want to help one person, and the fact that I get to now go around the world and share this is um, that's just what the power of word of mouth and social media and and great folks such as yourself are are doing by sharing days and messages like today. Well, you, I mean, you honor the memory of of Jamie Hubley and 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 honor their life, um, but it's your your life wasn't a cakewalk either, Tad. Um, you've you've walked some miles in those in those boots. Yes, I, I have. And actually, up until October 2011, I'd kind of buried it. I, I, um, I recognized it was my past. I was going to leave it there. I wasn't, um, I felt like I was in a good place. It was just Jamie's story kind of triggered it. But my, my story was five years old, parents divorced, was with my dad. Um, 
he married a woman that was not very kind to keep it family friendly here and um, locked me in a basement for 12 years. And the rules for me to be down there, and I guess I should describe the basement of four cement walls, concrete floor, one light bulb, no heat, no air conditioning, no toys. Uh, the windows boarded up. Uh, my daily routine would be curled up in a fetal position against the wall, just trying to, to stay warm as best I could. That was my normal growing up. Um, the only time I was ever allowed to leave the basement was to go to school. But again, being so introverted, and now I recognize I was, I was suffering abuse and neglect at home that uh, I had a trigger. And if the kids had just called me a couple of bad names, I lost it. I cried and cried uncontrollably. And that over the years manifested to the point that I was now assaulted. I, I was punched and kicked and chased home and, and beat up. And um, those memories never go away. They, they don't. So the struggles of mental illness for me were real because, well, they, they still affect me to this day. It's, um, it's one of those things that uh, you, can't, you can't talk it out. You can't make them go away. It's almost for me, from my personal experience, I've just had to own it. And I think it is therapeutic that I have these opportunities to share. Uh, you demonstrate just absolutely remarkable courage uh, in what you do and talking about this. Uh, so matter of fact, I would imagine that it evokes emotion um, within you, how, how, how did you wind up? Um, uh, well, I don't know why I'm checking myself before I use the word. Okay. But I, but I, I, I'm just trying to, I'm picturing this, this, uh, individual, uh, who's being abused and confined and left to be lonely. And we understand the power and the necessity of human touch and interaction and all of the things that you were deprived. And here you are, uh, literally, I mean, we haven't even talked about your work as a police officer, um, but but even as an anti-bullying advocate, uh, literally saving people's lives. And, and, and I guess one of the one of the things about your work, you'll, you'll never really know how many lives you've saved because you may some, say something to an individual that needs to hear it most. That's quiet in the back of a, an auditorium um, or that watches your video online that you'll never hear from personally. But you, you may save their life. How did you turn out, if I can say, OK, how are you still alive? How are you still here? Uh, and I love that question because there was a moment in my life that I almost didn't make it. And that is from holding this in for years. And thank goodness nowadays we have a lot more conversations about mental health and mental illness. But when I was struggling, we didn't, we didn't acknowledge it. We didn't speak about, we didn't speak about sexuality. We didn't speak about abuse or even the bullying. We, we didn't even talk about that back in my time. So as society, we've come a long ways, but I guess, the, the way I did is I wanted to survive. I wanted to make it. And, and for me, it was, it was just holding on to the dream since five years old. I always had the dream of wanting to be a police officer. And I think that was my escape was that was the only occupation I could think of as a child where I would be in a position to help another child like myself, where I'd be able to, to save them, to rescue them, to put them under my arms, to give them love and, and respect. And I think holding on to that for all those years was my saving grace. But the mental illness was um, something I still struggle with. I take medication every day to, to help balance my moods. I see a psychiatrist once a week. I'm very proud to say those things because it's a sign of, of courage and strength. It's because I want it. I, I think I'm worth um, the fight to to get the help that I that I need uh, to move forward and to navigate a world that can be uh, pretty unkind at times. Still, yeah, it's beautifully said, and I think you know I think if more people 
uh, talked about, uh, you know, their own personal uh, mental health journey in a way that's just simply matter of fact. I find help with these medications. I find help by getting exercise. I find help by eating well. I find help by talking to a counselor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I know the world would be better off. And, and, and that kind of normal thing needs to be normalized, in my opinion. Um, Tad, let me let me ask you, we want to ask you about some of the signs of bullying and and where you're really focusing your attention and your efforts. But but I have to ask because it's it's not. Uh, well, I don't know. It's probably more common than we think, as a matter of fact. Um, but but to be an openly gay police officer in, in, in the climate and in the culture of policing and policing certainly is not alone here. But uh, do you continue to face uh, challenges, uh, discrimination, uh, you know, people judging you for who you are uh, on the, I know police forces, they don't like to be called police forces on the Calgary right. police service. Uh, do you still encounter those types of things? Uh, that's a, a great question. I, I really, really like being asked that because I'm an open book. I mean, literally I share everything and I speak openly. I can honestly say that my time with the RCMP for five and a half years in, in Surrey, BC, and now eight years with the Calgary Police Service, I've never heard it. I've never felt it. I've never sensed it. Um, like, not at all. Not the way that I know that people may may think based off what they see and, and read and hear in the news. It's um, my, my lived experience tells me otherwise. And that's not to take away from anyone else's lived experience. I, I'm only sharing from mine. I, I've never sensed it. I've never felt it. I've never experienced it. Um, even being a public figure and, and speaking openly about being a police officer and being openly gay and, and mental illness um, and having websites and Instagrams and all these ways that, you know, the general population can connect with me. I also haven't experienced it there. And uh, I guess you can call me fortunate. Um, I would like to have a little bit of an optimistic tone and, and think that that's the way it should be. I mean, yeah. people should be experiencing that. And if they are, it goes back to the point of we need to keep the communication going because we're not a perfect world. We have a lot of work to go um, and still to do, but we've also come a long ways. And I think that is something to celebrate. I think it's absolutely remarkable. And that's fantastic. Let me ask you, Tad, uh, when people today are going to be you know, wearing pink shirts, uh, it's going to prompt uh, conversations, which is excellent. But we know that there are also days on the calendar where people wear a certain shirt or display a certain ribbon or say a certain thing. And then Nothing happens. Nothing comes of it. Uh, what do you hope that people take from Pink Shirt Day? What should we be looking for? What should we be talking about? What should we be taking action on? Well, for me, it's it's uh, I, I learned a long time ago that there's only one person in the world that I have any control over, and that's myself. So I try to lead by example, not just on Pink Shirt Day. In fact, the shirt I'm wearing today is the shirt I wear, not the exact shirt, but the same color <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that I wear every day. I, I wear pink every single day because I want to I wanna lead by example. I want my actions to speak louder than, than words. And, and um, you know, being that resource, being, being an additional support, I think is, is important. Letting people know that the conversation is continuing to go year round is the point of today. Um, I know a lot of people wear pink all the time. It's, uh, I'm not the only one. It's, it's just a matter of, it's a day that, that we can openly and freely speak about it in hopes that, that like you mentioned, it, it goes on for the other 364 days out of the year as well. What can we, can I ask, uh, first of all, let me ask you an important question. I, you're in high demand today. Do you have an interview starting in like 30 seconds that you're going to be stressed about? 
not 30 seconds. And I try not to get stressed. Okay. <laughs> this guy just boom, boom. I love it. Uh, this, is, this is my first time ever talking to you, ever meeting you. I'm a big fan. I I get the sense you're the type of guy that's going to wind up if, if, if you do, uh, if, if you take on the man, I, I see you being like the Lieutenant governor or something down the line. Uh, you're the type of individual I know that's going to continue to impact society. Um, let's have a quick conversation because I do know you have other interviews. Um, but, but the definition of bullying, I think, you know, we're going to think of, you know, kids on the schoolyard kid being shoved into a locker, you know, you know, these types of things, you know, they take your lunch money, whatever the, the standard traditional stuff from the movies. Um, we know that adults are bullied in the workforce. We know that people can be bullied within their own personal adult relationships. Um, the definition of bullying, I would imagine as a police officer, as a survivor, you probably have a different definition than some other people might. Yes. Yeah, so speaking from the policing perspective, there's no such thing as bullying. It's uh, we use the, the real words based off the criminal code of Canada. So typically it would be threats, assault, harassment, uh, those sorts of offenses. When it comes to what the actual definition of bullying the word is, it's um, it's important to recognize there are three elements that must must be present. Otherwise, it's not bullying. And that's not to say that the the actions are are, you know, okay or all right. It's just to say that there's a difference between one-offs and bullying because bullying is behavior. So the three things we're looking for at all times is going to be repetition. It's going to be an imbalance of power between the two, and there's going to be the intent. So the bully is intending to cause harm to their target. The reason why it's important to have the definition of bullying separated from cruel, mean, one-off behaviors is because if bullying has in fact been taking place, it's been going on for quite a long time. That's the repetitious piece. And we need to be able to um, to understand that's a behavior and we're not going to change a behavior overnight. You can't just sit someone down and say, stop doing what you've been doing for days, weeks, months, years on a daily basis. We have to work with that person to change behaviors. Whereas one-off uh, actions, you know, the kids on the schoolyard, that sort of thing, you typically can sit down with them and change the uh change those actions with a conversation. Um, uh, TWF champ is watching us live on YouTube this morning says, I feel his pain. I was bullied in school throughout. I had a teacher bully me in grade two. Um, I commend Tad for, for his courage in speaking up. Thank you to the constable. Uh, that from TWF champ. I want to, I want to put this in front of you. Here's a tough question. We'll, we'll end it here. Um, I, I suspect you're the type of guy that you, you probably hope you only get tough questions. I, it, you strike me as the type of guy that's looking to have meaningful conversations when you do interviews. Um, Terry says with the constable's understanding of mental health, how does he feel about the concept of defunding the police? What would you say to Terry and the rest of us? Well, I'm all for it. It's, um, uh, I don't think you're going to find very many police officers that are going to say they're against defunding the police. It's, um, it's just the fact that the way it's being perceived in the media of late is like this is an us versus them scenario. The fact of the matter is years that police have been attending calls that it's not meant for police. It's, it's not illegal to have mental health challenges. It's not illegal to be homeless. These are societal challenges that, that we're experiencing. We've been experiencing for a long time. But at three in the morning, society doesn't have any options shy of a fire truck, an ambulance, or a police car. Um, so by default, it's the police that are going. And I know there's been some very high-profile uh, calls that, that make the news. And, uh, you know, there's the investigations that take place there. But mental health isn't – you just don't get educated in, in mental health. It's, um, you know, psychiatrists who are the, the true experts. They're going for years of, of training just on that topic. Uh, I think 
if I were to have a challenge with the defunds movement, it's just the fact that the message is so strong, but they almost have two messages. They're, they're saying we need we need to have the funding for um, mental health, uh, you know, um, resources in our communities and supports and take it from the police. Whereas I think if, if they were to to have all the energy focused on, we need all these supports and put that pressure on our city councils, the ones that, that make this decisions on where the money goes and, and how it goes, then, then I think it would almost be even double um, the, the pressure that we're putting on those that are elected to make those financial decisions. It's, uh, but you're not going to find any police officers, I don't think, from my experience in talking openly about it, that are going to... Uh, to have anything negative to say because we should not be going to mental health calls unless there is imminent threat to to self or others or you know a danger to to if a if a social worker to go for instance but we're not going to fix this issue overnight and it uh, may not even happen in our lifetime because we have to build up all of those supports and that takes quite a long time you might be one of the most remarkable police officers or maybe one of the most remarkable people I've ever spoken with, Constable. I really appreciate you making time for us today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I can't thank you and, and uh, your audience enough just for taking the time to to hear what I have to say. That's Constable Tad uh, Millmine. I want to encourage you to check out bullyingendsher.ca. It's the internationally recognized charity that he founded. He's uh, changed and impact the lives of of thousands of people, really remarkable stuff. You can also follow the hashtag bullying ends here. And he and his team do a great job on social media as well. You can find them on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else. Our- All right. Um, we got Jespo a little bit disconnected there, and we're just going to try and get him back in where he needs to be. Sam, so do you have me here, buddy? We have you there. Uh, I think I booted you. And that is on me. I was trying I, to I, juggle the guests in between guests. It's and, okay, uh, pal. And, and I think you, I kicked you out trying to add a new guest. It's okay. It's okay, pal. Um, I mean, I, I think everybody here knows what's going on. Um, this is a hostile takeover of the show by Samuel G. Brooks. That's correct. Uh, who, who, who now is in a position where, where he holds all the power. And, um, and uh, for as many times as on this show, we have said, that we now uh, independently come into you cannot be deplatformed, cannot be silenced, can cannot be canceled. Uh, Samuel G. Brooks is is now reminding me, of course, that uh, that he can cancel me anytime he wants. Um, <laughs> we're, we're we're having a lot of fun uh, on the show, taking on some some sort of uh, fun kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to get to some of the stuff that kind of the lighter hearted stuff in just a moment. And then of course there's the, the very serious conversations like we just had there. And it's awesome to have real talkers here with us along with our partners as well. And that includes the team at Kubi energy. Uh, Kubi energy right now wants to remind you that there are programs in place, including uh, for businesses in the province of Alberta, commercial operators, as well as for residential uh, potential customers and partners of theirs in the city of Edmonton right now, when it comes to installing solar, that's That's what these guys do, and they've done it uh, for many years in B.C. and Alberta. They're Tesla certified, and they're very proud of the partnerships that they've had, including that big artistic solar installation at the Edmonton Convention Center. If you haven't seen it, you have to Google it. 
That's one of our title sponsors, Kubi Energy, that installed that project. They'd love to talk to you to determine what's uh, the proper approach for you when it comes to, I mean, heck, you may you may want to subsidize uh, your energy provision. You may want to completely get off the grid. They want to talk about all kinds of different projects with you. You can find them at kubienergy.ca or just check out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, this is a perfect segue uh, into welcoming our next two guests here to the show. Um, they just about a week ago released an, an opinion editorial piece uh, for the CBC called Lessons for Alberta from the Texas Power Blackout. One of them from the University of Calgary, one of them from the University of Texas at Austin. It's a pleasure to welcome Joshua Rhodes and Blake Schaefer. Fellas, thanks for making time for us and welcome to Real Talk. Hey, Ryan, thanks, thanks for having us. Um, I, I want to start, uh, Josh, with you first. You're a research associate at, at Weber Energy Group, the University of Texas at Austin. You're a founding partner of Idea Smiths LLC, uh, which is an energy consultant firm. So, so we're getting you in a position where I know you can talk to us about a bunch of different stuff. Uh, your home state of Texas uh, over the past while due to these storms has really been put through the ringer. Can, can you paint us a, a picture, a perspective wise of what it's meant for you and your fellow Texans? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, for like 12, some like 12 million Texans lost power, you know, during multiple days of sub, sub, sub freezing temperatures, which, you know, we just don't normally get that often. I mean, this, this, this Arctic air mass that came out, I've never seen all 254 counties in Texas under a winter storm warning at the same time. And uh, while this weather is just a normal Tuesday for, for y'all, I mean, this is just not, you know, the weather that we, you know, we're usually um, accustomed to or associated with. Like we're, we shine when it's like, you know, 42, 43 degrees outside for a hundred days straight you know, that's when our grid is designed to, to meet. And just because at the same time, yet at that point, no one's wanting natural gas for their home. And so we had a situation where, you know, we had two pulls on the gas system because half of our, you know, our fleet is runs off, our electric fleet runs off natural gas, but all about 40% of our homes also use natural gas for heating. And at this, but at this time, we were putting demands on both of these infrastructures that were way beyond kind of, you know, what they were, you know, designed for. And, you know, we had, issues with water freezing at all kinds. We had wind turbines freeze. We had, we had, um, you know, coal plants trip offline, nuclear plants trip offline, everything. At some point we lost 40% of our power plants and you just can't run a system like that um, under those conditions. Uh, Blake, you're a, an assistant prof in the department of economics in the school of public policy at the university of Calgary. You come at this from a really interesting angle as well, because you're a former electricity trader uh, for 15 years. You worked natural gas emissions, BC hydro, uh, you worked with Barclays Capital, Lehman Brothers, Transalta. You've done a ton of public policy work as well for a, a bunch of different governments on energy and climate policy. How did how did the two of you come together? Like, if you guys, you guys, I, I mean, Calgary and Texas, we, we we obviously see some synergy here in in the two states. But how did the two of you connect? I uh, that that classic connection in these modern times, Twitter. Uh, that's that's it for us so far. We haven't actually met. We 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 plan to meet, but the uh, the pandemic sort of put a halt on that. Uh, Josh has some Canadian connections. His spouse is from Canada, so he spent a lot of time in BC, uh, where I'm originally from. But uh, no, it, there's there's a really you know Twitter has its downsides, but there's a really productive we call it energy Twitter component where we do share a lot of learnings, uh, we do share a lot of research, and and that frankly that's where Josh and I met. So, Blake, when we take a look, I mean, uh, obviously, there are a lot of jumping off points we can take with this conversation. Um, I got into this a little bit with uh, former tacos, Danielle Smith, on Monday, knowing that I was going to talk to the two of you 
uh, today on Wednesday. I, I would imagine that your take on, on wind and solar and grid susceptibility and these other types of things will be will be different than hers. But 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 why are we looking at the state of Texas right now? Aside from the obvious, aside from the fact that it's it's compelling and it, and it and it, uh, of course, uh, you know, kicks off or kickstarts a bunch of conversations. But what in particular piqued your interest about what's going on right now? Well, I mean, this, frankly, this is a really serious event in, in power circles. This doesn't happen very often. Um, you know, California had a blackout earlier this year. It paled in comparison to the size of, of what happened in Texas in terms of the length of the outage and the magnitude of the outage. Um, this will be one of the more serious events. It raises a lot of important questions for how we're thinking about grids in this you know, changing climate and changing electricity grids. So there's a couple takes that are coming out of it, right? There's... There's what I would call the unserious takes, people saying, oh, this, this proves the, the failure of, of wind and solar. Um, that's an unserious one. That's sort of an off-the-shelf take that was ready to go at, at the whim of any sort of situation. The real serious take, though, is how do we maintain a reliable grid with both the changing climate and increasing shares of variable generation? You know, th this is a problem that's not novel. It's one that we're, we're grappling with in, in electricity policy circles. Um, I've been thinking about an analogy, Ryan, and I know analogies suck. Uh, they normally are terrible, but bear with me. Let me, let me try this one out. See if this resonates for you. Okay. Um, imagine I've got demands for getting places, transportation. I need to go places. I've got my car and I go buy a bike. Okay. I, I'm a fair weather biker. So I bike when the, when it's nice outside and that's about it. And it's great. It feels good, but it also saves me the cost of my fuel it saves the emissions from my car. And then we hit a cold snap. And what happens? Well, I go to my trusty car and that car fails. So there's three takes coming out of that. One is people saying, well, clearly the bike failed you, but I never planned on using the bike during that weather, okay? Uh, the second is those reminding us that, well, Blake never planned on using the bike during that weather. He relied on his car and the car failed him. It's the car's fault. And then I think there's a third take, which is where a lot of us are going, which is how do we maintain the reliability of a car or some you know, firm use of trans mode of transportation that we're only gonna be relying on in, in more scarce periods because we've got this bike at other periods of time. And how also do we have a car that's lower emissions? So that's the sort of problem we're dealing with in electricity. Renewables are what they are. They're just raw energy, they displace fuel, they displace emissions when they generate. The question we're grappling with is how do you maintain the reliability of the grid uh, when they're not there? And that's something that Texas really highlights in spades. And it's something that we saw in, in the Texas case, they weren't ready in terms of weatherized uh, power plants, thermal power plants to deal with the combination of, of low wind, extreme demand. The lesson for Alberta is we're going to be facing these questions, not so much in the winter where we've got a really robust system, but we do have potential challenges in the summer where our system isn't necessarily built for it. And we are starting to see increasing peak demands in the summer. So that's something that I'm I'm interested in making sure that we're prepared for. Josh, do you think that this, I mean, will this serve as a, as a wake up call, not just for your fellow Texans, not for the people that are still sitting without power in some remarkable circumstances, but, but for lawmakers as well. And, and, and I mean, for all the levels of government that would have to get on board with this type of thing, including at the state level. Yeah. I mean, I would hope so. Cause I mean, it's, you know, it's, un, it's unacceptable how many people sat and sat without power for so long. I mean, it's one of the things in Texas is, that's unique about Texas is since it has its own electricity grid, a lot of those decisions are made at the state level versus other states in the U.S. 
you know, they're, they have grids that are connected across state lines. And so there's some federal oversight with the ability to, you know, implement certain policies um, above the state level. But the ERCOT grid or the Electrical Liability Council of Texas grid is wholly contained within the state. And so there's less federal oversight. And so it's really up to, going to be up to our state legislature, which is, you know, having emergency meetings and starting to meet today. Um, and, you know, then the authority that they delegate to other to other systems. And so we have different regulators for the electricity. That's the Public Utilities Commission of Texas. We have different regulators for oil and gas, which is the Railroad Commission, which fun fact does not manage railroads at all, but just by a, a fact of no one wants to change a name because we like tradition in Texas, still has the name Railroad Commission, but they manage oil and gas, but they don't necessarily always talk to each other. And so someone's gonna have to bridge that gap because both of these infrastructures that we're relying on, we can't have one without the other. And, you know, we couldn't get we couldn't get gas to power plants. But at the same time, sometimes we couldn't get electricity to compression stations to move that gas to power plants or homes. So, I mean, it's completely interrelated and it's a bigger problem than just pointing fingers at, at you know, at one place or the other. I appreciated this email uh, to talk at Ryan Jesperson from Charlie. Uh, Charlie watched the interview uh, that I did with Danielle Smith on on Monday, where we briefly talked about this, um, f- you know, for reference purposes. She had a piece as well uh, published in the Edmonton Journal, Calgary Herald, um, that that people w- where I know. Uh, well, some people were outraged by some people, you know, felt that it solidified their position. Uh, sometimes the mark of a good op ed piece. So long as it's accurate. And that's kind of where Charlie digs in here. Charlie says, you know, you know, your guest, Danielle, had stated that she had given wind and solar a fair shake. I'm not convinced. Uh, I don't think that her heart was ever really in it. I want to ask our panelists about whether you believe that wind and solar is getting a fair shake. But Charlie goes on to say, you know, solar panels panels don't deliver when they're covered in snow. Well, sure, but hardly a showstopper. Much like any source of electricity, solar generators need operator attention and or maintenance. Sometimes those are very mundane and, and may involve putting on winter clothes and grabbing a broom. Also, with wind and solar requiring backup. Maybe, says Charlie, but what's absolutely true is that wind and solar generation is always going to be quite variable and will rarely match demand. And somehow this minute by minute imbalance has to be addressed. That's where I really want to dig in with you two. Blake, you're nodding. How would you respond to Charlie and the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, he's right. That That is the fundamental challenge. That's what a lot of us are looking at. One helpful thing that we do is we separate these generation components into energy and capacity. And we think about two constraints you need to solve. So one is an energy constraint over a long period of time. We have some quantum of energy we need to meet. Renewables do a good job of that. The other is a capacity challenge, meaning we need supply to be at least as great as demand at every instant in time. Okay, And renewables don't do a great job at that. And so in the old world, we used to think of those problems together because we had dispatchable capacity that provided both energy and capacity, sort of on-demand generation. Where we're headed is a world where they're decoupled. Okay, so we're getting renewables giving us the raw energy and we're thinking about other things that can provide that capacity. And I think one really important question folks are asking is, you know, why do that? That sounds really complicated. Why not just find some solution that delivers it together? So nuclear is a nice example of that in the clean energy space, right? And the real answer there is simply how cheap renewables have gotten. So if you would ask me this question five years ago, and, and like you pointed out, I've been in this business for you know 20 years now. Um, no, renewables weren't a great solution. They were really costly. And I think that's formed these ingrained opinions on where renewables fit. They were extremely costly. And they simply delivered raw energy. They didn't give you the capacity. So it was right to question 
what their role was. You're paying a lot for those emission reductions. Prices have fallen so much, really in the last three to five years. So if you haven't updated your priors, you're really missing out to the point where, you know, Ontario was paying $800 a megawatt hour, Ryan, about 15 years ago. Now you can get for solar. Now you can get solar for 20 to $30 a megawatt hour. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's impressive how much it's fallen. So when it's that cheap, we're willing to take all its limitations and find other components to deal with the variability. Blake, do we have to, if we're going to be talking about renewables uh, and we're going to cite Ontario, don't we have to acknowledge that they've, they've been absolutely beset with prime Ontario's renewables experiment uh, to be frank, or at least an investment that that government made a number of years ago has, has been a total disaster. Do you think that's scared off politicians and maybe the general population to a certain degree? Yeah, absolutely. There's fallout from doing things, you know, poorly. So one, you know, you can argue, was it poorly? They, they, they were early movers. So they, 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 they lose out on that. Alberta gains in the fact that we waited a little bit for prices to come down the curve. One could argue that Ontario helped the prices come down the curve by, you know, pushing supply. Um, I would argue some of their policy design was poor. They put out a menu of prices, what they were willing to pay. Whereas when Alberta made its foray into renewables, we had a competitive auction, which drove down prices. So policy design, early movers meant that, yeah, the public has a bad taste in their mouth about some of the costs and rightfully so. Um, but it's really important to remind folks that things have changed right now and renewables are no longer synonymous with high cost. They are still variable. They still have those challenges. That's not going away. That's just physics. Um, but that's okay. Like my bike example, it's okay to have a bike that's used for fair weather and to find some other method that we can deal with the cold weather. Um, and, and that's the, what, what we're thinking about in electricity circles right now. And so one of the issues I, I had, I guess, with, with um, Daniel Smith's article was the notion that um, this proves a failure because wind and solar can't provide 100% of our electricity needs. No one is asking for that. No one is saying wind and solar will provide all of the energy and all of the capacity. It's well known that what we're looking at is coupling wind and solar energy with other sources of capacity. But will so if but if we acknowledge and 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 to me that seems hard to argue with. It actually seems to make perfect sense as as we look to to decrease our carbon footprint and be more efficient and save you know cut costs in the long term. And there's a lot of reasons why we would do this. And Josh, to a certain, what I love how you come at this, Josh. I mean, you're you're a researcher at Weber Energy Group, University of Texas at Austin. You're also in the business, though, right? As mentioned, as a founding partner of Idea Smiths LLC. So you you're aware of trends. You're aware of the economics of this. You're aware of the bottom line of this. Um, it's not like you're just sitting on the top, uh, you know, of some some big sort of public money pot where you can spend without consequence. You're thinking about this right. on a daily basis. How do we evolve the conversation about co reliance? Because if we're fair about what happened in Texas, and you know more about this than I do, but my understanding is that natural gas systems were were freezing up as well, that that the wind deficiencies actually aren't as bad as they're being spun, that actually wind came out of this looking all right. How, how do we have sort of a, do I call it a holistic energy conversation? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, you know, Blake was right when he was talking about energy and, and capacity. I mean, if we look at the raw numbers, like, and it it's hard to, to look at this event and get it. There's so many ways to slice up the numbers because the event lasted so long. I mean, typically in Texas, when we plan, we think of a couple hours on August four and on at 4 PM on August when it's extremely hot outside, but then the temperature goes down and everything's fine. You know, a couple hours later. Um, 
but I mean, the thing is, is like, if you look at the raw numbers, yes, wind was down a couple thousand megawatts, but our, you know, natural gas and coal and nuclear were down tens of thousands of megawatts. And so, and some of that was systems level failures. Like we couldn't get the gas, you know, to our power plants to operate. And so, and some of them, you know, they froze up. So we have to take a look at it, you know, from a systems level, um, because if you're just working in gas, like we're just working on the gas side or just working on the electricity side, you've got blinders in there. You can't, you can't, if you're not looking to see, you know, what your neighbor's doing, like it can lead you down a pathway where you think you're, you're good. You think you're secure like Texas did. I mean, every single scenario we went into this modeling showed us being okay. Obviously those, you know, those forecasts and those scenarios were wrong, but like, you know, uh, the big thing that like is that interconnectedness between these systems that, you know, we missed out on. We didn't see. Blake, you, your, your career and like, well, let me just cut to the chase. What are energy traders going to be talking? Like, is this is this, I have to imagine this is one of those moments where people will remember back to the the Texas storm of 2021. Is that the case? And if so, what do you think that, uh, you know, your former colleagues and, and energy traders will be talking about? Absolutely. You know, I, it's one thing interesting from a personal level. I started my energy trading career basically during the California crisis. I was trading for, for the trading arm of BC Hydro starting in 1999. And then the energy crisis hit in 2000, 2001. And I was listening to, to wonks and academics like I am now <laughs> um, opine on, on what went wrong. And now, now the tables have turned. This, this will be one of those momentous events. Um, because we went, like Josh said, beyond the bounds of what ERCOT planned for. So they do a reliability assessment. They just released their winter assessment in November. Uh, I think they had a stretch peak demand for winter of 69,000 megawatts. And, and Josh, what, what, what did it hit on the Sunday before, like in the low 70s, right? Yeah, we were hitting, we were almost hitting our summer peak levels. Yeah, almost hitting summer peak levels on a Sunday too. And so yeah. we never even got to see what it was on Monday because the load shed came in. So they blew away demand forecasts. Then on the supply side, they have a certain amount of capacity they deem reliable or, or they, they expect. And they derate that in the, in the stress case scenario by about 15,000 megawatts. And I, I think during the peak of, of the events, we had over 30,000 megawatts offline um, just in the thermal space alone. Uh, so, so it blew away all of their planning. What electricity traders are likely to talk about, or, and a lot of wonks, is there's going to be lots of questions raised on Texas's market design. So they have a market that, again, relates to Alberta. We have this energy-only market, meaning you, you get paid for what you produce. Many other markets have another layer to them, a capacity market, which is I'm going to pay you over the, for a full year, or in some cases many years, simply to exist whether you produce or not, knowing that I can lean on you uh, when I need. So there's going to be lots of questions as to whether or not sort of the, the faith in the market that, that Texas and, and I, we have here uh, failed them. Um, I have my personal views on that. I think Josh and I are similar that I'm not sure if a capacity market really would have resolved the winterization problem, which is what failed them. Um, unless a capacity market came with extremely onerous penalties that incentivized winterization or simply required it uh, in order to get a payment. Um, absent that, I mean, a $9,000 per megawatt hour opportunity cost of not being there is a pretty darn big penalty. And so yeah. I, I'm not sure if capacity market really would have saved them. It might be a question more of regulating um, reliability to deal with climate extremes right now. I, you know, Blake, you talked about metaphors and uh, 
I, I don't think actually that I should put this out here, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, but I but I'm a, but I'm afraid that I'm going to derail our conversation. I don't want to do it, but I, I just feel like and Josh, maybe you can sort of fact check this or clarify for me. I, I read a piece. I don't remember if it was in the New York Times or something, but this past week. It was excellent. It was talking about it went way back to like before the Alamo. It went to when when Mexico was, uh, you know, when Texas was part of Mexico and the Alamo and, you know, present day San Antonio and, and, and sort of the attitude and, and how that that anti litter campaign don't mess with Texas came to be such a perfect representation of the ideas of Texas and and learning a little bit more about its its sequestered grid. Uh, basically, and sort of that spirit of fierce independence. And 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 here's where I'm getting a little off track, I'll admit. But there's a lot of conversation in Alberta right now about about leaving and talk about Western alienation is turning to talk about Western sovereignty. And, and, and there's this kind of upstart movement. And and um, I don't want to put I don't want to give it too much credit, but I also don't want to take it for granted and scoff at it because I know a lot of people feel very strongly about this. But Texas also learned a bit of a lesson about some of the risks that come with 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 building walls and cutting yourself off of, of everybody else, didn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, so Texas was the only state that was its own country for a while. So we kind of already have this kind of chip on our block for about 10 years. We were our own country after we won independence from Mexico, you know, before we joined the the union. And so that's like it goes way. It goes back that far. And, you know, the way that the electricity grid, you know, evolved, it kind of evolved naturally to kind of be with contained within Texas. And by the time we figured out that the feds would want to regulate us, we kind of decided to, to, you know, to, to keep them out. It's a little bit tougher than that because some of our neighbors were also having issues during this time. So the grid to the north of us, the Southern Power Pool, which, you know, basically goes from Oklahoma north and then, you know, east of us in Louisiana, which gets into, you know, fully regulated Southern company, you know, they were also having blackouts at the same time. It might've helped some, you know, but it might not have helped at the initial onset. It could have helped later. But if, you know, if we were talking about looking at that, I think we would need to go big or go home. Like we would need like a national or continent North American scale grid to move stuff around uh in bulk and i I don't even know if those connections would have been strong enough because i mean to drop thirty thousand megawatts i mean that that's just a lot to put on the on on an import system Uh, let me ask you fellas this um i want to i want to sort of broaden the conversation and and um we've got a lot of different questions from viewers leading up when when we announced that you were going to be with us the two of you we started getting emails from people with great questions um, I, wa- I want to do justice to the emails by kind of lumping them all together into one because there was a, a lot of really specific data. People came at us with research points and footnotes, and we don't have time to get into it all. But can we have a meaningful conversation about the environmental impact of sustainables? A lot of people are talking about the mining of precious metals when it comes to their manufacturing. People are talking about the disposal of batteries, and, and maybe we're still just in the beginning stages of learning, like, what's that going to mean for our landfills? Both of you are nodding, so maybe I'll just hand it over to you, Blake. You first. What do we need to talk about here? Well, I, I think an honest conversation involves those type of life cycle assessments, so, so that's perfectly valid, and we do need to better understand... Um, you know, the, on the EV front in particular, so we're straying a bit from electricity generation here, but, you know, the rare earth metals and where those are coming from and, and, and the conditions in which those are mined, that's an important question to, to raise and to, and to deal with. It, it's not, um, I think there's good faith and bad faith uses of those arguments. I think some of it is sort of more of a delay tactic, but I think the good faith argument is to find better um either better mining practices or as you know, Tesla has noted, moving away from cobalt and, and more towards nickel as their metal anode. So things like that can be done. The recycling front is a really interesting one because these are big batteries with lots of valuable rare earths and 
you know, at the end of their lives, it's going to be uh, an important question what we do with that. I, I'm a fellow at the Creative Destruction Lab. It's sort of a venture capital thing. Um, it's in Alberta. It's in a few places. Uh, I see tons of innovative companies looking at this, uh, not just from the environmental standpoint, but because they see the value in reusing and repurposing some of those metals. So lots of battery recycling companies and, you know, uh, mining, uh, mining spent, you know, the tailings from the oil sands for rare earths, those types of companies are, are up and coming because they see value there. So I think it's a problem, but there's solutions to it. <laughs> Sorry, guys, that's my, uh, this is our home security system that's working right now. Um, that's Monroe okay. and that's Moses. Monroe, you're hearing on this earphone and that's Moses on the other one. Uh, I've got my two-year-old in the background too, right? We so. love it. We, we, yeah. we've said that this is a, this is a, well, it's not always a family friendly show, but, but, but we celebrate people's families and working from home and we're certainly dog friendly. So, um, but uh, no, that's great. And, and um, I also wanted to make sure like uh, Blake, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you or not, but we're going to be talking to uh, natural resource minister, uh, honorable Seamus O'Regan coming up on Friday morning, eight 30 mountain, 10 30 Eastern. And I want to talk to him a little bit. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're going to talk about orphan wells. And of course we're going to talk about a, a lot of the, the usual stuff and bridge line five and Keystone XL. I want to talk to him about nuclear. I want to, talk to him about hydrogen. Um, now, I recognize the two of you weren't specifically writing about that in your piece, and that's not what I asked you to come here to talk about. But but do we need to expand our conversation <clears throat> even further? <clears throat> yeah, I, I can start and maybe Josh jump in, but absolutely. The, the notion of what is the climate resilient capacity that can be there to keep the lights on when we have a dearth of wind, which is common. And so there are several solutions. Um, there's storage. That one comes up often, but really... You know, the type of batteries we have today isn't the solution. These are generally short run and we need multi-day and sometimes multi-week storage. Um, transmission. So this is something to bring up with uh, Minister O'Regan. Long distance transmission connecting a broader grid so that we can move energy like Josh was talking about there across regions that are maybe affected by different weather systems at the same time. We can help each other out. Um, that we have, a, we have more connections from Alberta to our neighbors than Texas does, but far less than most states. And so we are relatively island. So uh, adding to transmission is really important. On the clean, firm capacity front, I think Minister O'Regan is quite serious when he talks about these. And I did, in, I did have a webinar with him on hydrogen previously. Hydrogen offers a, an interesting alternative to natural gas peaker plants, that's one. Carbon capture and sequestration on our natural gas plants is an, yet another option that becomes viable with the type of carbon taxes we're talking about. And nuclear, I'm a proponent of, of looking at nuclear as one of these firm sources. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased to see that Canada is taking that seriously. Nuclear debates take on a life of their own and there's strong yeah. views on it, um, but it is part of the solution in my view because it provides something that, that we need, which is reliable firm capacity that's clean. Josh? Yeah, no, I mean, I think any, you know, reasonable, you know, grid study that looks into the future, or, you know, tries to get, a, to a, get us to a low carbon, you know, future includes things that are firm, but also, you know, lower, no zero carbon resources. And I think, I think limiting the box, limiting the box of tools that we use to, to get to that future can only make things more expensive. I mean, maybe we do end up going towards a future that is a hundred percent, you know, solar, wind and storage. Maybe that's where the prices take us and maybe that's where we get. But I don't think we should, you know, we, we should exclude these other technologies that might get us to a cheaper future, um, the same pathway. 
or a different uh, employee. No, no offense here, Josh, because you're a very likable guy. And, and I know, and I can't speak on behalf of Penny, who's watching right now live on YouTube. So I don't want you to take personal offense to this. But, sure. but, but Penny does make an interesting point. She says, you know, as these guys are talking about enlarging or expanding the grid to support a greater area, I was nodding, agreeing, nodding until he got to the North American aspect, says Penny. And after the last the last four years, I'm not sure I want to be further tied to the U.S. Uh, Josh, in closing, can you comment on that and, and, and interpret it as you will with your closing remark? Yeah, no, I'm sure. I mean, you know, we oscillate back and forth and, you know, we are where we are. I mean, Biden's plan has us getting the, you know, the clean by 2035 or at least the plan he's looking to put forward. So, I mean, hopefully that'll be, you know, a better on, on that front. But I mean, I don't know. I've spent plenty of time in Canada over the past few, four years. So I understand as well. Yeah, there you go. Blake, last word to you. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I think, uh, I think connecting our grids is valuable and I'm, I'm uh, pr- more comfortable being interconnected with the U S for some reason over the last month than I was the last four years. Yeah. I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it, but, but for some reason I'm starting to think about traveling back to the States. I'm starting to feel better about, you know, maybe sort of entertaining those ideas. Uh, listen, fellas, we've taken you into overtime. I know you have other obligations. Uh, Joshua Rhodes, uh, doing a great job out of the university of, uh, of Texas at Austin and Blake Schaefer at the university of Calgary. Thanks for this fellas. We appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for having me. And, and a reminder, you can read their piece. It's a great piece worth checking out uh, at the CBC's uh, website, cbc.ca Lessons for Alberta from the Texas Power Blackout. Uh, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and an amazing, a really remarkable new project that journalist Elise uh, Stolte is taking on. I'm grateful that she's uh, going to chime in right now. This is a, a new project called Groundwork. And uh, if you yourself are a senior, if somebody you love uh, is a senior looking for information on vaccinations, I know many of you were trying to figure out this morning uh, how your loved ones could get vaccinated. Uh, Elise has these answers for you. Wanted to remind you that we're having these conversations and we're on the air uh, in today's case from my home, Sam Brooks running the show from our, our studio location because we have the ongoing support of amazing partners like Westworld Computers for more than 40 years, family-owned and operated Westworld has been providing service for residential as well as commercial customers. They can hook you up if you're looking to overhaul your business platforms when it comes to the tech side of things, hardware, software, they've got you figured out. But even if you're, you know, just, just a civilian, even if you're just an individual looking for the hottest new phone to be able to transform what you're doing in your neck of the woods, Daryl and his team can help you out at Westworld Computers. Also wanted to give a big shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping. They share your excitement that spring is almost here. I don't want to jinx us. Uh, if you're watching from a from a, a potentially wintry part of the world, I'm not trying to jinx us here. I'm not trying to call on another a cold snap or winter storm, but it appears as though we may be emerging uh, out of the winter into spring. And this is the time we start dreaming about spending more time outside and having that campfire circle we've always thought about. Maybe putting in a swim spa with all the money you're not going to spend on a European vacation this year. Well, the team at Eden Landscaping has been helping people take their dreams and turn them into reality for many, many years, more than 20 years, in fact. And you can find them at landscapeedmonton.ca. They are the preferred landscape designer 
design and construction company here, the sponsor here right on Real Talk. That's Eden Landscaping. All right, let's get to our next guest. Uh, Elise Stolte is, is well known around Edmonton for her years of work as a journalist covering City Hall, covering urban issues for the Edmonton Journal. Most recently, she's been running an initiative called Groundwork, which is a really neat project in engagement journalism about learning how to better report with the community, with, not just on the community, focused on the topic that seniors, uh, for this month anyway, seniors and COVID-19. It's a real pleasure to welcome Elise Stolte to the program. Hi. Thanks, Ryan. Hi. Hey, the, the last time that you and I sat down, um, it was in person. Uh, yep. it, it, it was across the table in a different studio, in a different setting on terrestrial radio, and you were just getting set to take your family to Europe. You headed over to Switzerland, right? I mean, my, how things have changed since we last checked in. Yeah, that was crazy. That was um, a, a much different, uh, much different year than I was expecting. I first uh, ruptured my Achilles tendon and then we lived through a pandemic over there, but uh, it was fantastic. It was really great to have a break. I homeschooled my son. I experienced a new culture, met lots of friends in Zurich and just had time to sort that out. And also had time to study engagement journalism, which is um, something I'm really passionate about, really excited about the possibilities. Well, I'm I'm intrigued. I mean, I know that a lot of people are going to be watching or keenly listening right now, um, straight up for the information uh, that, you, that you've been gleaning and, and really some of the focuses that you've taken as part of this groundwork project, specifically for seniors in COVID-19. But, but why don't we start with the bigger picture? Because an experienced journalist like yourself, I don't have to tell you that that the way that people are telling stories and the platforms and the methods that people are, are, are gathering information and sharing information, they're all changing. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that journalism is any less important. It just means that it's evolving. So, so what has this meant for you? How are you taking a different approach here? What does engagement journalism actually look like put into practice? Yeah, well, it's, it's an, a pilot project, first of all. There's tons to learn about it. And I like to say that because I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes and that gives me a little bit of cover. But um, it's, um, it's also recognizing, like for a long time, we've tried to be more, in, uh, engagement journalism has meant being on Twitter and being on Facebook and being on social media and having those conversations with people. But that's not everybody's on Twitter, right? Uh, especially if you think about trying to reach um, older adults, many of them, some of them don't even have a wireless connection, right? Those are, our, our print readers are, um, have much more representation there. So how do you reach those people? What new tools can we do? The, so the premise of engagement journalism, as you said, is in doing journalism with the community. So how can we, at the very beginning of a project, reach out, let people in, hear from people what they think needs to be covered, let them come forward with your stories by being transparent, by being upfront about what our questions are, what we want to tackle next, not hiding all our cards and worried about somebody scooping us because you know what, big deal, so more people write about the important issues of the day. Just being open and letting people come forward and then letting that inform us as we shape our project, right? I didn't start this project on seniors and COVID with a whole list of exactly the list of stories I was gonna come out with. I just said, you know what? I think there are big questions here we're not answering. Join me, let's figure this out. That's why I didn't know that our first project would be to write a guide to the vaccine rollout, but I heard so many questions on it. So yeah, that's what I've been focused on is just these nitty gritty questions of like, if my parent is here because I sponsored them to go over here and they're not a permanent resident and they're not a Canadian citizen, can they still get the virus? I mean, yes, they can get the virus. Can they mm. get the vaccine? Yeah. 
uh, I just got the answer this morning. And yes, they can get the vaccine as long as they are in that age category and they've been here for three months. It is free. They can get the vaccine. Well, and I would imagine that you, I mean, when it, when it comes to, you know, if you were to ask the question even now to the, however many people are watching live now, however many people will listen to the podcast later and say, what's the most uh, important issue or the most uh, compelling angle, or what's the single most important question to you that you might have in the context of, of COVID-19 or the vaccine or seniors. I mean, you'd, you'd get thousands of different answers. Um, I would imagine that this has been a bit of a wake up call for you through the process as well. It's what, what, what have you determined or what sort of angles have you discovered that maybe you wouldn't have even thought of before? On the, on the vaccine rollout specifically. Yeah, Specifically with regards to seniors in the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is just the questions that anxiety of not knowing what the plan is and not knowing the details, right? Like, are there going to be chairs at the vaccine clinic? Is there going to be somebody to help me get from my car into the clinic? I, I did not know this was a big question, but yeah, that's a really big question. Answer is yes. They are all mobile. They're all fully accessible. So those kind of questions were interesting. And then there's questions on just like, what can I expect? What are the side effects? What if I have an allergy to nuts or shellfish or something like that, can I still get it? The answer is yes. All of those kind of questions, I, I could kind of guess, but I didn't know for sure. So we had, um, we're well past 400 people writing in so far um, asking questions. And so that's that's been great. Another common question I didn't expect was um, if, if there's two people in a couple and one is older than 75 and one is younger than 75, a lot of people are asking, well, should we wait? Should we get this together? And I didn't, I didn't anticipate that. Because my assumption was, no, you get the vaccine as quick as possible. But I think maybe because they've lived through this together for so long, they've been married for like 40, 50, 60 years. They just assume they're going to they're gonna come out of this together. But um, I put that question to uh, Dr. Lenora Saxinger, who I think you've had on, your, your, yeah. uh, on your, your show as well. And she says, you know what, you should see it as an approach that if one person even gets the vaccine, that's reducing the risk to the household. So absolutely take whatever vaccine is offered to you as soon as you can get it. And uh, then one person can help the other if one person does get sick, right? Yeah. Uh, Elisa, I'll be honest. I, I don't know as much specific. I know that um, I'm going to embarrass myself here a little bit. I don't know as much as I should about the significance of today, except for that I've seen some of our real talkers here on our live chat saying, did anybody try to get in and book the vaccine today? Has any? I know that today's a big day. It's and, a big day. It's uh, right? a huge and day for some people. It's a yeah. huge day. Can you explain uh, to those of us that might not have the specifics on our radar why today is so big and, and some of the issues that people may be encountering? Yeah, totally. So today at 8 a.m., suddenly 230,000 people just became eligible for the vaccine. Everybody 75 up who is still living in the community, they all became eligible at once. So I'm not a tech person, but I can imagine that's uh, difficult for an online booking system to be suddenly able to handle that kind of demand. And as one could be expected, um, one person texted me to say that it crashed at 8.04. so, the, oh, and HealthLink was overwhelmed by 801 because um, you can either call in 811 to get your appointment or you can go online. So I think that was totally to be expected. What some, some people did get in, I know you've also had Darren Markland on your phone. He yeah. was tweeting this morning because his mom got through and his mom has an appointment for 3.30 today. And, you know, he's, he's one of those who's done a lot of work on this, has poured his heart and soul into to fighting COVID. So 
you know, it's, it's kind of nice that his mom got through as well, but yeah, I, um, I would, I would say that maybe our, our, uh, our frontline docs and nurses and, and paramedics, uh, you almost feel like they should get like a, I don't know why I'm thinking of the Willy Wonka golden ticket, but I almost feel like all the frontline workers should get one golden ticket that they can just go to hand whoever hand to whoever they want. I, of course I know. And I'm, I'm joking. And I, I know that that's of course the last thing that the system would allow for, but, uh, but man, oh man, have a lot of people stepped up in incredible ways to ensure that that society is protected as possible through the course of this rollout. What are some of the other common things you've said, at least that you've got about 400 people writing in so far about this guide? What's another recurring theme, specifically in the context of seniors and COVID-19 that's been put all over your radar? Well, it's just this, like I said, it's the anxiety. If there's any recurring theme, it's like, when can I get this shot? Because, I mean, you know it, people are stuck inside their homes. And I think we sometimes, when we go for walks outside in our neighborhood, or we go to the dog park, or we go to the, the grocery store during normal times of the day, we don't see these people because they're, they're in their house. But there are actually a lot of people who have not come out or have just barely come out of their homes for months and months and months. Um, and they've kind of just disappeared off many of our radars. And it's only been through this process of listening um, that I've come to really understand that. Um, in addition to the, the online forms and the mailing list that I've created, we also um, signed up with a, a texting company out of the States. So in the newspaper, the actual hard copy newspaper, there's a phone number that runs usually with my stuff that invites people to text in their questions um, because we wanted to find a way for people who are not online to still communicate and so it's only through hearing that way that I'm starting to get this sense of um, anxiety from, from those who just, yeah, they're, they're really, this is their ticket out. And that's why it just, it was so important for the Alberta government to come out and say, this is when it's happening. And the yeah. more they can do that, the more they can just be really clear in what people should expect. And even if not when, because you know, the vaccine supply has been really unpredictable. I totally get that. Yeah. But if they can just roll out for people, this is our plan and this is how we're going to adjust it as the supply fluctuates, that would help people so much. Elise, it's like, uh, you know, they say, you know, with these acceptance speeches at the Academy Awards and everything else, you know, you better be careful if you start thanking people because you're bound to forget some people that deserve to be thanked. And so so here I am saying we should give these Willy Wonka golden tickets to, you know, frontline doctors yeah. and nurses and, and paramedics. And of course, I'm, I'm going to forget people that deserve their own golden tickets. And, and of course, uh, one of those groups is a group that I think is has perpetually, if I can say, uh, been taken for granted do incredibly important work. And I know that you're about to kick off a, a specific focus on caregivers. Yeah. 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 And I'm actually really glad that you brought up that golden ticket thing, because that's, if we can just jump back for a minute, that's the other huge challenge here is balancing frontline workers versus those most at risk, at risk from health impacts, yeah. right? Because you have other people who are younger, who they're at home, their whole families have tried to cocoon around them. Their kids are home from school to try and protect them, even if that's not the best learning situation for them. And they are also waiting. And so this day might be a hard day for them because they see lots of other people moving forward, getting the vaccine, and they're not in the second group, they're in the third group. So there's that. And then there's all the teachers and the grocery store clerks and the 
um, taxi drivers who are going to be getting these seniors to the shot. Right. There's so many people out there who can't isolate. Like you can see behind me, I'm, I'm clearly in my son's bedroom. I'm thankful to be able to work out of my son's bedroom. <laughs> there are other people who can't. Um, but to your point about caregivers, yes, that is um, after we, as we finish rolling out this guide and, and answer all the questions, that's one of the next big topics I'm going to be focusing on. And that's another thing that came up through this listening campaign is um, people who care for other people at home have always been at risk of being isolated because it's hard for them to leave. It's hard for them to get respite care. It's hard for them to go out and get their hair cut when they're worried about their loved one at home who might have dementia, is slowly declining. Especially right now when you've heard so many things about the care homes, people want to keep their loved ones home as long as possible. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to understand all the things they're going through. Um, right now there's also a, a a review on a provincial review of the Continuing Care Act. So this is really newsy at that time as well. And um, yeah, I'm hoping to hear from as many caregivers as possible um, who want to come forward and just help me understand what that path is like and what what they hope that other people could know as they're getting into it. Um, and what what kind of, as the, as the province reviews this situation, what kind of changes do they need to make so that this um, unpaid part of the healthcare system is recognized for what it is. Kim's watching this morning. She says, my, my dad qualifies to book uh, for his inoculation today. My mom has to wait. She's a bit younger. Kim says, I think I'm more excited than they are. I, I don't think they've even bothered trying it. A lot of people are going to be advocating, I think, on behalf of their parents. I know that a lot of people, I mean, every single thing that you can do, uh, my parents don't quite qualify. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not at that age threshold yet, but I know that, man, if I could skip getting vaccinated myself to push them to the front of the line, I bet you thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would, would make that choice themselves. Um, Elise, what does it, what does it look like? I'm asking, I'm asking you such an unfair question. I was going to ask you what this looks like over the next two weeks or over the next month or so, but, but I'm asking you to look into the murkiest of murky crystal balls, aren't I? Yes. But what I, I mean, when I look at this, I'm obviously not up for the vaccine either. My parents are in the same boat as you. They, they will be further down the line. I just hope that, I mean, it's really hard for people who are so counting on this vaccine and they're sitting there and they can't get through and they know that the vaccine supply is unstable and that's, that is super hard. But at the same time, think back to a year ago, like we didn't know when this vaccine was coming. Think back to the fall. When I was thinking, like in September, and they were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to have a vaccine soon. Cynical me was like, yeah, no way. It's going to be, it's going to be a year, right? And then it actually came. And that's amazing as well, right? Like, that, that is incredible. And so even if there are more supply shortages, there are multiple vaccines in the, in the queue here. Like, this is coming. We just got to hang in a little bit longer. Yeah, I don't know if I, that can give anybody hope, but I hope so. Uh, but I think so. And and Elise, I think it's an important um, it's an important um, case to make. And it's an important point to encourage people on, because I know that 
Um, I, I, I'm sort of hesitating here and you can probably tell because I'm deciding, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I bring our viewers and our listeners into my personal thought process. It's just how I've always been. I'm trying to decide, do I want to make this personal again? But this is very relevant. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, you're coming to us from your son's bedroom. It's hilarious to see real talkers right now telling us where they're working from. I, you know, one says I'm working from my daughter's room right now. Um, but, <laughs> but, but the reason I'm home is because we had a bit of a COVID scare, uh, a contact of mine tested positive and we, and we're going through the, and, and thank God, I mean, we, tested negative. I found out at one in the morning, we tested negative, but we're still isolating um, per protocol. And, and, and it served as a real wake up call to me, at least because to be totally vulnerable and honest and upfront with you, even we and me in a position of, of like you having some public influence and having a bit of a platform, even I was experiencing some COVID exhaustion. And even I was looking at like, what, what can we do that remains legal but it but will allow us to, you know, so we start talking about outdoor campfires and we start talking about mixing and mingling a little bit. And we start talking about getting the, you know, Wyatt back into playing hockey. And we're starting to think about these. And and for us, these last few days from the minute I got the text from my contact that when they told me, hey, I've tested positive. Um, and, and then immediately in that minute, everything changes. Like you immediately put on a mask, you immediately leave where you are, you immediately call to schedule a test. I mean, everything yeah. changes in an instant. It was a huge wake up call because this COVID exhaustion, some people that have bought in for a year now are starting to, I think some people become disheartened and, and maybe start to loosen up a little bit. And that, and that's not a good situation. No. And so it's just good to keep that long-term perspective, right? Like there, there is hope, <laughs> you yeah. know, this is, if these, if these vulnerable people can get the vaccine, that's going to be amazing for the health care system. It's going to be amazing for them. It's going to really reduce the anxiety around this whole thing. And maybe I sound naive, but you know what? I We're going to get through this. I, I, don't think you sound, I don't think you sound naive. I think one of the reasons why I feel like I've been able to pick your stories out. I mean, if, if your bylines were deleted, I feel like I'd still be able to find your stories. Uh, because you've always had a really great way of understanding people's psyche and, and understanding, I think, where where communities are at, uh, while at the same time presenting fact. And that's a wonderful balance. Uh, let me ask you, we, every single week, we're really proud to partner with Y Station. They're the official research and strategy partner of, of Real Talk. And, and at RyanJesperson.com, we present our question of the week. And, and you know, over a thousand people every single week chime in. And many of them don't just stick to the survey questions. We, we say, tell us more. And boy, do they ever, they pour out their hearts to us. You're experiencing the same thing by the hundreds. It, it, it means something, doesn't it? What has what the personal impact been like for you to have people spill their guts in the best way? It's, it's awesome. It, it really, it makes you feel like what you're doing really matters because you know exactly who needs this information, right? And so, I mean, even with this guide, it's been cool to put together because I know who needs the information. I'm getting the information. And now we're at the point where I know this is really useful. I'm starting to reach out further. We've taken the paywall off the guide on the website. So I'm contacting like Meals on Wheels and uh, Drive Happiness and some of those other senior serving organizations where I know that not all of their members um, can afford a subscription, but they're able to take that information maybe repackage it a bit while still giving us credit and, and share it out. And then if they have other questions, they can feed those back to me. I had the coolest conversation over the weekend with a, um, a Punjabi um, youth group um, leader. They have this project where they're reaching out to their seniors to try and give them COVID information. And well, like 
I have no ability to translate any of this stuff into Punjabi or reach those seniors. But now we've got a little bit of a partnership going, right? So I can give her the information. She can help spread that to the people that she really cares about. And if they have questions, she can feed them back to me. And of course, I'm, I'm happy to go and see if I can find the answer because if she can give me a good question, I'm sure there's lots of other people who need it. So that's, well, it's, it's awesome. I, I really, I like where this has gone and I'm excited to find other ways to do this well. Yeah. I mean, I, I was paying attention to it, um, you know, to let you know, Real Talk is proud to subscribe to the journal and you've been doing great work um, at edmontonjournal.com slash groundwork. Um, so we, we had, you, you were on the working list uh, for interview requests, but I'm going to be honest with you, at least like a number of our audience members reached out and were like, you need Aww. to talk. I'm serious. Like a That's number awesome. of them. And you know what they, they always say, I mean, we always take it this way. You know, they've always said like one letter of, of complaint or praise represents about a hundred people. Um, so I would say hundreds of people, I would say, you know, more than a thousand people based on the letters we got, wanted to see you here on the program today. So uh, congratulations on what you're doing. I think it's what journalism is all about. You're obviously evolving the craft. Um, and, and it's, it's really exciting to see both from a big picture kind of theoretical model, as well as for the information that you're making accessible to people that need it most. Uh, nice job, Elise. And it's great to have you here on the show. Thanks. I really appreciate that. You bet. You can follow Elise Stolte on Twitter at East Stolte. Of course, I, I, I tag all of our guests from my account uh, at Ryan Jesperson. That's where you can follow me. And of course you can check out edmontonjournal.com slash groundwork. Uh, now we've told you we're going to read some of your emails today and we're, we're still uh, coming up uh, an, an expert on aerosols, uh, so to speak. He's, he's a, uh, he's a mechanic. He's, he's earning his, he's a PhD candidate um, in mechanical engineering. And we're going to talk to this fellow in just a second. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, but of course, we're also a day away from budget day and our budget coverage. Uh, we're going to pick that up tomorrow on Thursday. Uh, and then of course, our Friday roundtable, our Real Talk roundtable at nine o'clock on Friday morning, we're going to be talking about the Alberta budget and, uh, and Western Canadian politics, the dynamic between Alberta and Ottawa, Alberta and the United States, the White House. It's going to be a great conversation. Um, I'm going to get to Lindsay's email in just a second, leading up to budget day. Uh, but first, hey, if you're working on a budget, I know you're going to roll your eyes, but I couldn't help myself. Why not go check out a Dairy Queen in Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park today? They've got this chicken strip special going for under seven bucks. You can find out more if you go check them out, go see them and make sure you tell them that you're a real talker. They love hearing from you. The team at Dairy Queen said that the, the outpouring, the, the attendance, the interest in their Valentine's Day Real Talk special was absolutely impressive to them. They love when you come through the drive-thru or even leave a note on your uh, if you're going to order through one of your favorite delivery apps leave a note let them know why you're ordering from one of their six locations in northwest edmonton and sherwood park we're very proud to be affiliated with the team at the dairy queens uh in northwest edmonton and sherwood park and we're going to be telling you more about some of the charitable fundraising that they're doing um this is not their green light it's what i'm noticing they're plugging like six figures into the community just out of these six locations each and every year and we're really proud to have them on board as a sponsor we're going to get back to talking about aerosols and the spread of COVID-19 in, in just a moment. But I wanted to get to Lindsay's email here. This is really, this is one of those emails that, that and it is a little bit longer and she apologizes for it in true Canadian fashion. But, but the minute that I read this, I thought, this one needs to get onto the show. This email needs to be read. Uh, Lindsay, uh, not her real name, says, if you do end up sharing this, Ryan, uh, I should probably stay anonymous. Uh, our community's pretty small and your listeners are far and wide. And well, you know, and so Lindsay, not her real name, sent us this. 
I said, I've always uh, been grateful to be able to catch up on the week's episodes of Real Talk for context. I'm a grade four teacher with relatively young kids and, and school starts right when your show is gearing up 830 Mountain Time. And I love sneaking in the first little bit of Real Talk uh, during my show prep uh, and, and then maybe during lunch on some other days and then catching up on the rest later in the day. Uh, it's I can't even tell you what it means to hear people uh, talk about their relationship with Real Talk like this. Lindsay says we, we live in rural Alberta, almost Saskatchewan, really. Uh, and we bought a quarter section of land days before our first child was born about eight years ago. It was a steal. We got lucky. My husband's an oil field contractor on the Saskatchewan side of the border for a smallish Calgary company. He babysits the current wells. He doesn't love his work. Uh, he's environmentally trained, water, soil testing, sampling, but it doesn't pay enough right now to pay our bills or allow him to be home with us as our family grows. You know, the issues that you touch on in the show, they all touch on our family and, and their relevance uh, across the province. You know, you, you've had guests talking about uh, BC instituting a $10 a day daycare initiative. And that, that fired me up because I had just paid $1,372 to my daycare provider for, for two of my non-school aged kids for the month previous. So I know that may be inexpensive for some of your viewers, but that's a big expense for us says if there was a $10 a day childcare initiative, we could probably survive off my paycheck and, and my husband would be able to stop working at a job that he hates and maybe explore some more innovative and, and creative ways to survive. As a matter of fact, he was just accepted to Olds College for their meat processing certificate program. And, and he'll attend that for four months and we'll make it work. You know, your guests tie together and, and, and these reasons, these pervasive themes oftentimes prompt us to regularly debate moving. It feels like Alberta is not taking care of its people. I'm a graduate from the University of Alberta, but by the time my kids are old enough, will our universities and colleges be competitive in the context of others across the country? If we continue to, to lose young people, uh, families, I mean, is this going to be a seem like a place or come across as a place that young people would choose? Or are we going to lose credibility when it comes to our post-secondary institutions? You've talked about the ability for people to seek treatment for, for mental health and for other things like, like occupational therapy and physical therapy. And, and, and the concerns here are, are appalling. And children's mental health, our future, it's almost non-existent. The needs are so high. There, there's not enough. Guests you've had, Ryan, talking about long COVID. Uh, this has been sobering for me. I already see fatigue in, in my little fourth grader's eyes and their parents are angry and tired and in some cases struggling and their future is unknown. And sometimes I feel like I need a degree in counseling as well as my degree in teaching in order to properly serve the students in my care because their learning needs cannot be met when their emotional needs are in turmoil. If you say that you care about the future of Alberta, how could you not invest in our children? School divisions across rural Alberta are getting innovative with things like tuition-based sports programs, and there's always money for that. It's, it's not a year-after-year year expense attracting students, which hopefully can, can maybe support teachers and learning by increasing the amounts of students. We've heard about this plight of rural schools. It says, but if you get a student with some extra needs, for example, through you know the midpoint of the year, is there anyone to help with that? Resources? No. Numbers are numbers. Values are messed up. This from Lindsay. All of the decisions being made involving education and curriculum and the environment and addictions and age for Albertans living in, popular, uh, in, in poverty are for popular short-term gain. 
for purely economic reasons, but we're not raising the people up. We're not putting programs in place to help people succeed and explore their passions and their talents and to see how Alberta can rise up and shine again. She says, I'm talking like rising up like the Phoenix style, but she says, currently we're embarrassing ourselves. She says, I agree with the recent guest of yours, Max Fawcett. One should hope for government to succeed and to do its work, but shit, says Lizzie, is it really challenging to see past the current things that are happening and the regular emails I sent to my MLA, MLA Horner. You know, they make me feel better for like five minutes, but then I'm reminded that it won't change a thing, the current trajectory of this party. And, and I'm pretty sure he's drinking the Kool-Aid anyway. He's just better at being polite about it than some of his other colleagues in government. Lindsay says, your, your agriculture panelists the other week were awesome, and it gave me hope for the future of, of rural success and, and celebrating the contributions and the innovation that's occurring in rural life. Says, by the way, if you ever have time, check out the Prairie Principal in Ontario. He's doing some great stuff. Lindsay says, I hope that maybe one day we can be a rural success story with, with an abattoir on our land. They, they, they want to open up their own slaughterhouse says that, you know, I'd love to as well see happiness from my spouse. She says, I really appreciate Real Talk and, and the contributors and the contributions that it's making. I'm sorry my email got a little long, says Lindsay. She says, but I wanted to close to let you know that we've been in touch with the team at Kubi Energy and we're waiting for the plans they're drafting up for us, for our place, to see if it's possible for us to convert to solar. Lindsay says, I'm so pumped. And I love that you promote awesome companies that you trust. And then she signs off with this quote from, from Dennis Waitley. It says, happiness cannot be traveled to, owned, earned, worn, or consumed. Happiness is the spiritual exercise of living every minute with love, grace, and gratitude. Said Lindsay, I wanted to leave that for my fellow real talkers. What an email. So, Lindsay, I hope you like the name I picked for you. Thank you for taking the time to, to chime in from your wonderful community of, I won't say which, for fear of identifying you when you've specifically asked that we don't. But I'm really grateful for that and for all the time that all of you take to be in touch with the show. Let us know how the, the content is resonating with you and let us know more of what you'd like to hear on the show. Our next guest uh, is a classic example of this. Many of you real talkers put his work on our radar. And then, you know, we started corresponding with him. And, and here he is on the show. Uh, Connor Riziki is, a, is a, a, a doctoral candidate, a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering at the University of Alberta. He's been researching pharmaceutical aerosols for 10 years, uh, born and raised Albertan, currently living in Edmonton. He's been involved in a number of COVID-related advocacy initiatives over the course of this pandemic. Connor, welcome to the show, and thanks for making time for us today. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Of course, it's an honor to be on here. We uh, just had a great conversation with Elise Stolte, who's been, um, I think, evolving the craft of journalism uh, with her team at the Edmonton Journal with this Groundwork Project. And, and um, it's it's a pretty cool precursor to talking to you, I think, because Elise pointed out quite rightfully so that as uh, some seniors, uh, most specifically octogenarians and those 75 plus in Alberta right now will start to get inoculated. Uh, it's prompting conversation again about 
you know, efforts that each one of us are taking or many of us are taking to protect some of the more vulnerable members of our society. This, this is right in line with the work that you've been doing, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I've been extremely interested um, since the start of the pandemic in terms of looking at different sorts of particularly non-pharmaceutical interventions that we can be using to help reduce the risk of transmission occurring in different sorts of environments. And uh, when the pandemic actually started, our research lab was contacted um, from a couple of different interested parties who were wondering, you know, is this idea of using masks a good one? Um, This was back when we were sort of struggling to figure out if we even wanted to use like homemade materials and masks and uh, things like that. And that sort of just got the ball rolling on, on thinking about the different ways that we can help reduce transmission in our day-to-day activities. So where was, um, I want to ask you some really entry-level questions just so we can sort of establish where you're coming from and, and your area of expertise and the specific focus of, of your PhD research. Um, when we talk about pharmaceutical aerosols, I don't want to take anything for granted. What are we talking about? Generally, the the sort of the best example we can use is sort of like a typical asthma inhaler, like a puffer or like a dry powder inhaler. That's a, a lot of my research involves looking at how to characterize the behavior of those sorts of devices. Um, so essentially, you know, how much drug um, from those devices makes it into your airways? You know, where does it land in the lungs? How does it get taken into the body? Like that kind of stuff. So this obviously, uh, as we've learned more about uh, COVID-19 and this pandemic and now these variants and how it spreads um, and effective measures, or at least the most effective measures that we can take in stopping the spread, um, as, as, you, as this pandemic started, I mean, obviously sort of originating out of Asia and, and, and some Canadians started paying attention to this story out of Wuhan that was growing and growing. And then all of a sudden, the first Canadian cases, and then we remember about this time last year, it started to get a little bit more serious. And then sort of the second week of March really things uh, became apparently problematic uh, in Canada. And and I don't have to spell out what what the subsequent year has looked like. Did you immediately see some real direct relevance to the work that you had already been doing? Yeah, um, I I, I think we in particular had one professor in in our research group who had been paying very, very close attention to this. Um, And he had sort of been putting the idea in our heads uh, from even from December that this could be a problem um, you know, coming, coming across into North America and basically spreading around just based off of what he was like his ear to the ground, what he, what he was hearing. And, uh, sort of the reports that we were hearing was like, yeah, okay, maybe aerosols are kind of important here. And it's kind of remained an open question, um, at least earlier in the pandemic, but a lot of research that's been done in the past couple of months has, has really specifically laid out the case for aerosols being more important than I think we had originally hoped. Um, because, you know, it's an extra, it's an extra sort of route of transmission that, that you do have to consider in different sorts of environments. So when, when it comes to, um, you know, reducing the risk of aerosol transmission, um, we're specifically talking about reducing the, and, and again, in lay, I can only speak in layperson's terms here, but we're talking about reducing, um, the particles, right. That we're emitting, uh, right. By, and, and so, one obvious example or, uh, of an approach to take would be wearing a mask, correct? What are some of the other steps we could take? And please correct me if the premise of my question is just way off. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, so, so just generally, um, aerosols, they're essentially just bits of matter that tend to float around um, sort of in the environment around us. Um, and they can be made up of liquid droplets or solid particles or some mixture of the two. And they actually come in a huge different range of sizes and their size kind of determines how they behave in a lot of different circumstances. 
But when we're talking about COVID-19, um, it turns out that you or I or everybody is essentially producing aerosols constantly through, through any number of actions. And the obvious ones that we can think of immediately are like coughing and sneezing. And, and those are symptomatic. So, so you have symptomatic individuals who are coughing and sneezing. It's pretty easy to figure out if, if that's a risk or not. But uh, it also turns out that we produce these aerosols uh, when we're talking and even simply when we're breathing. We produce some amount of aerosol when we're breathing. Um, this aerosol is basically made of the fluid that, is, is, that lines our airways and or the saliva that's in our mouth. Uh, and we know that we can, we basically find virus in those fluids. So it's possible that some of the bioaerosol that we produce and that we're emitting during any number of these actions can actually contain or carry this virus. And then the, the risk there is that if you have these, these aerosols that contain virus floating around in a room, somebody else who's in the space might inhale that virus and then become infected. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Now, this it, it's worth pointing out, and, and this, this may be obvious, but it may not. Um, you don't have to feel sick uh, to transmit the virus. Right. And I think this is this is a huge challenge. A lot of people unknowingly. I mean, this is <laughs> we've had kind of a, an interesting a bit of a wind wobble kind of a week within our family, even realizing that that how, how quickly something like this can spread with no symptoms. That's got to factor into the type of research that you've been doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, so, so one of the things that has actually made COVID such a hard disease to tack down and to like keep control of is the fact that we actually do have like a really big proportion of transmission occurring from people that are either pre-symptomatic or entirely asymptomatic. So one report I was reading yesterday said something like maybe up to 50% of transmission is occurring from people that don't feel sick. Wow. So that makes it really, really difficult to actually try to, to, to even just saying, just stay home if you're sick, you know, that doesn't really solve the problem because you can have perfectly otherwise healthy people still spreading this disease. And again, that makes it very difficult to try to, to, to attack this disease down um, if you're just focused on individuals who are feeling sick. So, so Connor, how, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say this sort of points a little bit towards the importance of aerosols um, with that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread, because we are producing these aerosols when we're talking and breathing. So there's, you know, there's some potential there for this to be coming into play. Yeah, no kidding. And I, I was just talking to Elise about the idea of COVID exhaustion. And I know that that's become a thing. And, and quite frankly, it's understandable. I think it's counterproductive to try to make people feel shame uh, for, for experiencing this exhaustion because a lot of people have been fighting the good fight for a freaking year. But these reminders are so incredibly important. Connor, this is the type of thing that, I mean, you're thinking about constantly. You're, you know, you're pursuing a, a PhD, obviously. Uh, how, do, how, how have your habits uh, evolved or been impacted by the knowledge that you have? I mean, do you, do you double mask? Do you wear the N95 mask when you go out as opposed to the typical cloth mask? How do you roll? Yeah. So, so, so I think one thing to note is, um, you know, the cloth masks that we're using, um, they're, they're good. They are playing, they are helping to reduce transmission. Um, so, so it's very important that we don't just throw out the masks that we're using because we think they're useless. They're not useless. They're actually, they're, they're actually tremendously helpful. Um, but one thing is when we start to think about aerosol transmission, um, as, as a real possibility is that we can start to consider like improving the masks that we're using. Um, especially if we find ourselves in sorts of high risk environments. So, so if I were, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate myself in that I'm basically working on campus right now and it's, it's essentially empty. So I'm by myself most of the time. 
I'm relatively low risk in terms of being, of, of coming across people. So I'm, I'm relatively comfortable with just wearing a surgical mask most of the time. But if I find myself around others, I tend to try to do like a little bit of a double mask technique. So I'll take like a form fitting cloth mask or something, and I'll put it over top of the surgical mask. Um, because that's basically trying to get that surgical mask to seal to the face better. So, um, and that's exactly what like an N95 type respirator is, is designed to do. So, so we know those actually provide the wearer with a lot of protection. It's because it's actually sealing to your face. So it's, so it's important to kind of get that sort of thing there. Connor, do you think, uh, and this is, again, I'm just asking for your opinion. Um, do you think, uh, that we'll be, I saw Dr. Anthony Fauci asked about this the other day on 60 minutes. Do you think that we'll be wearing masks in 2022? Do you think that even culturally, um, as a result of this pandemic, that potentially more people made, I mean, for example, I know in some Asian cultures, um, pe people have been wearing masks proactively for years. Um, you know, there's obviously population dynamics that come into play and density dynamics and all these types of things. But how do you think this will impact culture moving forward? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing we've learned is that uh, we shouldn't have really had the attitude against masks that we had before this started. Yeah. A lot of people were quite uh, like, why would you wear a mask? That's, that doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, there is some really good evidence that is helping to reduce transmission of, of, every, of things other than just COVID. I mean, flu has almost been non-existent this year. Um, so, so I think there's, there's some good evidence to, to support this sort of proactive mask wearing. Um, I mean, especially if you're feeling sick and if you have to go to the hospital, like in those sorts of environments, I think it does make sense to continue this sort of a habit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some people. I know that, I mean, I think just even speaking from personal experience, how I feel when you start to think about, I mean, <laughs> you know, for example, when this whole thing started happening a year ago, I remember some of the, I shouldn't have been watching these movies, but I was watching like Contagion and Outbreak and watching all these movies that sort of put me in a headspace, but maybe it was also a reality check. Um, but, but now it's almost shocking, isn't it? When we, when we look at video of, of things that I know that many of us are yearning to get back to, like packed concerts and packed restaurants and packed malls and, and packed water parks. Um, but, but when you think of it in the context of a virus and how things spread and germs and bacteria, and, and now I feel like there's, there, people are, people are going to perceive scenarios around them differently. I think even, I'm not trying to like crack on, for example, public transit, public washrooms, things like this, right? I mean, we think of everything through a different lens now. Yeah. I think if you, if you also really want to make yourself upset, you can look at videos from places like New Zealand um, that, that actually managed to eliminate COVID, um, and, and see yeah. sort of their, their back to normal life. Whereas we're sort of, sort of struggling in this up and down sort of behavior. So, yeah. so, um, you know, it, yeah, we're, we're certainly seeing it's a reality now that we really do have to keep these sorts of things in mind. Um, but I don't know if it'll always be that way. I think once we get to a position where, where we're back to more normal life, like, you know, I, I do think we'll be able to get back to that sort of, you know, more comfortable being out and about, that we were obviously we took for granted before this happened, you know? Yeah. Uh, Daniel says, I, I remember, you know, uh, traveling through the Vancouver via the Vancouver airport pre pandemic um, uh, saw many travelers that appeared to be originating out of Asia wearing masks. And he says, it, I completely understand it now. I thought uh, perhaps before it was concerns around pollution. Uh, but 
perhaps it was something other than that, says Daniel. Alyssa says, I'm going to keep wearing a mask indefinitely, especially as travel reopens. A mask on a plane seems inevitable. That's one for, I mean, I think my wife always grinds my gears and laughs at me. She actually takes pictures and and I have to beg her to not put them on Instagram. Whenever we travel, um, I'm one of those people that has no problem falling asleep on a plane. Uh, I've always been able to sleep on a plane, but I tilt my head back and I open my mouth and it's a ghastly sight. It's really, it's not a pretty sight. Um, but I think now to being on that disease tube uh, with my mouth wide open, just just bringing in. I mean, it's it's actually kind of like enough to it gives you the heebie-jeebies a little bit. I'm with Alyssa. I can see myself wearing a mask on on a plane moving forward. What about other air circulation issues, Connor? I mean, Ken's writing in about family members that work in restaurants. Um, people are uh, at some point going to be returning to office towers. Right. As, as, as some normalcy returns to, to some workplaces, um, do we need to have an audit as a society on our on our HVAC and, and talk about keeping people safe? So, so first of all, I'll just comment on airplanes. Um, you know, it's actually pretty amazing um, that we haven't seen much transmission in airplanes as, as I think people would have imagined that we would have. But part of the reason is because airplanes actually have tremendously great ventilation when they're up mm. in the air. It's actually really just incredibly high amount of air exchange that's going on within that cabin. So, so the actual odds of a buildup of aerosol occurring there is, is extremely low. Um, I mean, yes, we have observed uh, some outbreaks occurring on airplanes, but I think all things considered, we would have expected to see a much bigger problem there. Um, but we haven't again, I think because the ventilation is so good there. Well, let me, let me interrupt. Let me ask you then, because one of, one of the premier's comments, um, and, and, and I do recognize that the airline industry has taken an absolute beating, um, as of thousands of other industries, but the airline industry among them, um, and, and, and premier Kenny, uh, you know, I think it was the beginning of January, uh, right around that Aloha gate time had said, Hey, listen, you know, flying, uh, and specifically traveling on airplanes uh, is actually safer than going to the grocery store. Um, is there something to that? Would that is there? I, I mean, I'm asking you to sort of riff here, maybe without numbers in front of you, but is is that statistically supported? So uh, it's important to keep in mind that the airplane is only part of the journey. Uh, so so there are moments where you're in the airport itself, like leading onto the plane. Um, you know, before the plane is actually up in the air and it's got all of its ventilation systems up and running like hundred percent, you know, there are circumstances there where, where it's like any other environment. Um, so, so specifically the case of, of airplanes not being as big of a risk is more so about when they're actually in the air flying in a tube, but you know, there's lots of different places in your journey to get onto the aircraft and get off the aircraft that there's ample opportunity for transmission to be occurring. So, so as I'm a little hesitant to say that, you know, that whole idea of, of going to the airport, getting on a plane whatever is, is perfectly safe. I interrupted you before, um, and, and I'll note you're a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering. I mean, this is your wheelhouse, um, specifically talking about, uh, you know, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, HVAC. Yeah, so um, I, I, yeah, you're right. I would like to see sort of an audit going on with that. And I recognize it, it's not, it's not a, it's a big problem to start to address because it's something that hasn't really been, you know, up. We haven't really considered this whole role of, of aerosol transmission much before. Um, and, and to think about the, the ventilation that we need to actually, you know, significantly make a dent in the odds of aerosol transmission occurring. Um, if you look at the numbers, basically we're talking about, we know outdoor, outdoor events are much safer than indoor events. Um, we're talking about like 10 to 20 times uh, less risk of transmission occurring outdoors as compared to indoors and outdoors you have free ventilation at an extremely high degree. 
So you want to get your indoor spaces as close to that sort of outdoor air exchange as possible if you want to try to prevent the buildup of aerosols over time. Um, and it's tough to get there, but you got to start somewhere. And I, I think there are spaces, um, there are certainly spaces, you know, certain restaurants, I'm sure office spaces where you have particular rooms or environments that, uh, you know, might have substandard ventilation that could really be potential hotspots for transmission occurring. And we have to identify those places so that we can, you know, start to address that. Connor, let me ask you in closing, uh, and, and we're grateful for your time this morning. Um, you know, people are going to start getting vaccinated, maybe not as quickly as everybody would like, but but people are starting to get vaccinated. Um, you know, some restrictions are being lifted. We see evidence of that in Alberta, in Ontario. I mean, for that matter, across Canada in, in varying degrees. Uh, why should people continue to care about aerosol transmission? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, but, you know, it's important to note that we're not at the finish line yet. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is really great news that we've started this vaccina vaccination pro process. And we should start to see, you know, a difference in the highest risk population, um, those being over 70 who are actually starting to get this vaccination. But, you know, it's going to be a couple months until we actually see that. But we do need to remember that COVID is not just a disease that affects, you know, the elderly or, or those with multiple comorbidities. Like this is actually a very sinister disease um, because certainly there's quite a few people who catch it and they can go through the entire course of the disease, you know, without feeling a single symptom. But there's absolutely people who catch the disease who are otherwise healthy that will end up with long-term health consequences and, you know, in some cases, death. So uh, one physician I actually were very closely with made a comparison to, to polio. And, and that seems like a very outlandish comparison at first, but it's got some sobering similarities because polio is a disease where the majority of people infected did not display symptoms, but for the one or 2% who actually faced severe illness, polio was an absolutely debilitating disease. And I think we're kind of starting to see something like that with COVID as we start to understand long COVID a little bit more, you know, it's not just these over seventies who, um, you know, we thought of as being highest risk of, of dying who are going to be facing long-term health consequences here. So I really do think we should be doing everything we can to limit transmission. You know, um, I, I think just basically some food for thought is that I, I don't think we should really be comfortable with the idea of, you know, a certain population or a certain proportion of our population um, being consigned to, to long-term health consequences because we're too impatient to wait for widespread vaccination or, you know, maybe too cheap to fund people who are forced to reopen owing to financial realities. Very difficult problem, obviously, but, you know, I, I, I do think we need to be aware of that, of those long-term health consequences that we're sort of allowing to happen if we let this get out of control. Well, we don't even, I mean, I'm not talking about the doctors, um, but I mean, there's a certain amount uh, of, of, of data, uh, anecdotal and statistical evidence that, that we don't know yet because we haven't, we haven't lived it out yet. We haven't seen it. So we don't even really know the, the law, you know, when we talk about long COVID and impacting people, I've received messages from so many medical professionals and researchers. Um, it's humbling to know that they listen to the real talk podcast and, and, and check in with us, but they're always hammering this home to us. They're saying, that you need to remind people, Ryan, that 25 and 35 and 45 and 55 year olds will be living with reminders, physical reminders of COVID-19 for decades to come. And they will not be counted among the death statistics, thankfully, but that does not mean that their quality of life will not be impacted. And Connor, that's always been a really important wake up call for me. 
Yeah, totally. No, it's a very sobering reminder of the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. Hey, we, uh, we, we wish you all the best in your continuing studies. I thank you for the contributions that you're making to, to society's understanding of what we face here and, and look forward to welcoming you back to the show. Thanks for clearing your schedule to talk to us today. Of, of course, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah you got it. That's Connor Rizicki's, uh a PhD candidate out of the University of uh, Alberta in mechanical engineering. Um, if you want to follow Connor, he's pushing out really, really great information. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. And of course, we link to all of our guests' Twitter accounts or Instagram accounts, as, as the case may call for. Um, you can always just look under the font right there that, that Sam puts up on the screen as they're talking, or you can follow me on Twitter every morning at Ryan Just. But see there, look at that. Sam is just, this guy just does such, such a darn good job of, uh, Sam, it feels weird, by the way, to be, to, to be so far away from you, buddy. Typically, you and I, we've got the eye contact thing going on through the show. And, yeah, uh, this show is a lot of that silent communication that goes on in the room. And it's because <laughs> yeah. uh, it's cause interesting because I can always see you. You're on the like you're on the laptop on Zoom right in front of me and I can always see your face. So if you're like waving at me and and I, I can get your attention, but it, it can't go the other way today. I have to text you if I need your attention. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then I'm not paying attention to my phone. So then we're but but, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Hey, would I would I would I be a, 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 an absolute idiot? The answer is yes. Would I be an idiot if I didn't read the spot for clean air club right now after talking to Connor, like what kind of an idiot wouldn't read the spot about clean air club and air filtration and air circulation and, and taking every step to protect yourself. I mean, we've been telling you for three months now, three months as of yesterday that we've been checking in with the team at clean air club to do sort of an audit on our space, just kind of like what we were talking to Connor about. Now at no point have we ever claimed that clean air club is going to be able to prevent the transmission of COVID that you don't have to wear a mask or worry about any of the other stuff that's not what this is about but we asked them to audit our space in the studio um, give sam a chance to put up camera four which we all love so we can show off our air circulation unit there in the studio that keeps the air moving in the real time look at that look at our very own vanna white right there uh, now he's got to he's, he's gonna hurry back because sam's so modest you see he wants to switch himself off the camera but i don't know about you i mean i'm happy to watch sam work for the entire 30 seconds i'm going to talk to you about clean air club so this air circulation unit is one of the things that we've been doing another thing that clean air club does in in putting you in a position, there he is, in putting you in a position so your family can save money and breathe easier is paying keen attention to your furnace filters. So you go to cleanairclub.ca, you sign up, you tell them the size of the furnace filter you need. They drop them off at your doorstep, sometimes the next day. And of course, you can stay on schedule to make sure that your family's breathing nice and easy. That's at cleanairclub.ca. Also wanted to remind you that the team at Park Power, proud supporters and sponsors of the Real Talk RJ hashtag. Uh, Park Power has been in business for almost 10 years now. The number 10 significant to me when it comes to why we wanted to work with them. Uh, let me tell you something. Park Power is one of the only businesses that we approached. Most of our advertisers have come to us. We went to Park Power. Why? I love that they take 10% of their profits and push it back into the community. They support nonprofits and they do a great job of highlighting those nonprofits on their social media accounts. Encourage you to give them a follow and check out parkpower.ca. Might be a great fit for you when it comes to electricity, natural gas, and internet. You're going to pay somebody for it. Why not pay Park Power? And of course, if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, you're going to save 70 bucks on your first bill with Park Power. Sam, I have been wanting to ask you about this all morning. Can you call up the photo of my extension cord? 
I have been wanting to, because you're, you're the technical producer of real talk and you're a guy that knows his way around some of these types of things. Okay. What do you make? So this is an extension. (laughs) As a matter of fact, let me tell you, um, this extension cord was what we used to power the home studio. I'm coming to you from yesterday. This cord was in use yesterday Mm. what do you what do you make of what you see there pal uh what i make of that is there was probably a small short inside the plug itself like it looks like that you know i wouldn't throw the cord out i just put a new end on it you know and and probably something like that but yeah likely something that would cause this is just internally inside that molded plug a wire got crossed and it uh you know got got a little hot I encourage people to check out my, I posted the photo on, on my Instagram story. You can follow me at Ryan Jesperson. And then I also posted it on Twitter uh, yesterday. And we got, we got, we got like a hundred comments on there from people that seem to know what they're talking about. A lot of people are saying, yeah, just, just put a new end on it and keep using the cord. And I'm, I'm a little freaked out myself uh, by it. It's, it's kind of a, yeah, it was a bit of an unnerving experience, but, but uh, always interested in the expert opinions from other real talkers. I wanted to put that in front of you. You never know. We're going to get an email from somebody that's going to have some insight into that type of thing. Almost every extension cord I own has been replugged at some point. So I wouldn't be right about, I wouldn't say every single one of them, but like, to me, it's just, it's such a common thing to do. It's just like an extension cord broke, just put a new end on it. Well, you know what I'm going to do now? The factory ones are kind of cheap anyways. Well, that's what people were saying to me. They said, you know, if you replace the the end of it, it's actually going to be a better quality one than what came out of the factory. And what I'm now that you've gone on the record, letting us know that you have experience with this, what I'm going to do is is abuse your job description and and bring in a personal benefit for me and have and ask you to to, to replace the end on will, my personal. I will gladly fix your extension cord for you. <laughs> replace the circuit breaker on a power strip like last week. So it's like, yeah, yes, we can, we I can know do that. We're, we're we're lucky to have this yeah. guy. And all I'm going to say is if I've been doing. If I've been like sort of doing like the uh, is is hillbilly a slur or can I still use hillbilly? Uh, if I do sort of like a hillbilly fix on an extension cord, it's not good for anybody. If that extension cord uh, continues to remain in use, I don't. I, I we probably have more of a chance starting a fire with an extension cord that I repaired as opposed to one that needs repair. You know what I'm saying, Sam? Yeah, I I mean I probably I overkill things. If I like if like if I get an extension cord that gets cut in the middle. Um, I remember I nicked my neighbor's like block heater cord with my snowblower once and I felt so bad about it. But like I will like I will solder the terminals back together and wrap it in heat shrink. Like that's that's how oh. extreme I go with these things. So so you found yourself in an interesting dilemma there. You were presumably uh, clearing the snow for your neighbor. You were doing them a favor However, you severed their block heater cords. <laughs> yeah, I so my house, the uh, the front driveway like runs into my neighbor's driveway, right? Like it's just like one big driveway for two houses. And um, when I have my snowblower out, I know my uh, particularly because I know Max, my neighbor, uh, owns a landscaping company and does snow removal for other people. So if there's a big snowfall, he's working like a 16 hour day. And if uh, I'm already like- out there with my snowblower, it takes me an extra three minutes to do their driveway, too. So why not? So this is like this is like the chef that comes home and eats craft dinner. Yeah. Uh, your neighbor is clearing everybody else's snow, never clears their own. And of course, you, because you're a fine, upstanding citizen, clear it for them out of boy. Um, 
Hey, I, I was thinking we, we have some elements here that I've asked you to prepare. And I know that this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but that, that truck on the pole, do you, this has nothing to do with anything, but oftentimes with real talkers that are hanging out with us through the morning and that are sticking around into the deep 10 o'clock hour, we like to give them these little, these little perks, these little benefits. Let's hit play. Let's have a listen to this. This is incredible. Keep going. Keep going. You got it. You got it. Do we have any audio, Sam? Okay, it's way better with audio. If we have audio, I'd love to hear it. This is, uh, this is, I don't know the story. Okay, it's lousy with no audio. Don't worry about it. Let's get rid of it. Sorry, there actually is audio. The way the board is patched is, is you get a bit of a different return feed. Yeah, Um, the audio is just turned way down on your feed. And that's, and that's mostly just to not overwhelm our guests. Okay, so are are people hearing the hilarious audio from that video? They should be. Okay. Um, blah, blah. Sorry, Real Talkers. Uh, better next time. I want to get to some emails. I don't even know what to say. That sucks. But uh, No, they, I, they I should. They, Everybody heard it. Okay, the funny thing. Yeah, okay. Um, I want to get to some emails here. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. Uh, there's some really interesting takes as you oftentimes chew on and digest interviews that we've done on the show. And sometimes we get emails days after the fact. I really appreciated this from Shane in Calgary. Shane sends us a message after we fact checked some of the the assertions that we've heard on COVID-19 from our panel of physicians last week. And Shane says, you you know, in reading the comments, Ryan, of Real Talkers, and I appreciate that you do it. Shane says, you mentioned a listener named CH and CH's take was that COVID sounded like a hoax. And I would have loved to have been able to ask a question to CH in return, wondering what they would say to those three doctors that you brought in, uh, Darren Markland and Shazma Mithani and and Lenora Saxinger. Uh, What would they say to the the physicians that are living this pandemic each and every day? Like, does CH actually think they're lying about what has happened so far and they're lying about their concerns about variants? Shane says, "I, I just don't understand what these people think doctors would get from lying about what's happening. That from Shane in Calgary. Shane, you know what it reminded me of? Uh, The minute that I read your email, it reminded me of of the assertions that I've heard over the years, many, many years, 15 years, uh, hosting different styles of talk shows, et cetera. And not every time, but oftentimes when you bring in a cancer researcher, you'll hear from the cynics, the cynics that will argue that cancer was cured many years ago, but it stands in the way of big business to roll out that cure, that, that big pharma wouldn't benefit or that the, the, the big organizations, the, the so-called nonprofits that raise money for breast cancer and prostate cancer and lung cancer and leukemia and skin cancer, that, that, that they, would stop to, they would stop profiting from the fundraising ventures. And, and so all of these oncologists and all of these cancer researchers are, 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 are holding back the cure. And I asked a cancer researcher about that. I read one of those comments once during an interview, and you could see her visceral reaction. You could see her body language. You could see her posture change as she tensed up. And what what I realized in the moment, I mean, I think I realized it before, but what I realized in the moment was that you were calling her and her colleagues and the entire community of researchers, and for that matter, participants in studies, liars. That's what it was. And it was a real wake up call to me. But this is that sort of same common theme. I mean, I've got a personal friend that still calls this the scamdemic and we've agreed to disagree. 
I wanted to close the show on this, and, and this is a little bit different. And and I want to I'm going to obscure the, uh, the the identifying information. What I'm going to do here is take my sharpie very quickly, and and just because I want to show you something in the screen, those of you that are watching this either live or later on on YouTube. So I want to show you that that this is actually a physical letter that we've received. Now now here's the thing. I'm going to tell you the total truth on this. This is a letter that I received on my birthday uh, in 2020, in April of 2020. And you're going to say, hang on a second. Real talk wasn't even around in April of 2020. That wasn't even a thing. You would be correct. This is a letter that I received when I was working at a radio station before this, but I hung on to it because it was, it was from a, a pair of seniors, George and his wife, Vera, and they wrote to me and they printed it out and they hand signed it and they popped it in the mailbox and it arrived here. And, I, and I've hung on to it because I knew at some point I wanted to read these sentiments and it feels fitting the day before Alberta's provincial budget drops that I would check back in on this. It's a letter that George and Vera sent to me, but they addressed to the premier of Alberta and Alberta's minister of health. George says, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, nor do I have a personal vested interest in the area of medicine, other than the fact that my wife and I are grateful recipients of medical services in Alberta since 1962. Over the last number of months, uh, we've heard the premier and the health minister try to rationalize cuts and changes to our health system for the sake of balancing the budget. This is why I wanted to read this today. We've also heard from some of our leading uh, medical doctors, uh, the practice here in the province, expressing their opinions and facts regarding their contributions to Albertans and Canadians and the devastating effect that cuts and changes would have. We've also heard and read many opinion pieces in the media along those same lines. Uh, recently, uh, now, now keep in mind, this was almost a year ago. The premier was defending his cuts to the doctor's pay schedule because, among other reasons, Alberta doctors were the highest paid in Canada, which is true. George says, really? And what's wrong with paying the best and brightest a top salary to save lives and maintain Alberta citizens' health? What's wrong with attracting the best and brightest there is to work in healthcare in Alberta? Prior to 1985, our family utilized medical services on an as-needed basis. And since 1985, this is underlined, my existence has depended on the brightest and best medical practitioners. Looking back, Alberta was the place to be to receive these services. Says I'm talking about doctors, nurses, pharmacists, lab techs, therapists. They've kept us alive. They've kept me participating in our workforce. Our family doctors, our internal medicine specialists, our cardiologists, surgeons, orthopedic specialists, neurologists, dermatologists, and pharmacists have prolonged our lives to this day and continue to do so. We continue to be productive citizens. As productive citizens, we've practiced our professions, we've run our businesses, we've purchased homes and cars and RVs and appliances and furniture and electronics and petroleum products, utilities, groceries, agricultural products, and other consumer products. We have volunteered, supported charities, utilized and supported the services of our province like recreational areas, tradespeople, technicians, mechanics, plumbers, electricians, and carpenters to maintain the products we have purchased. We continue to pay provincial income tax, excise tax, property tax, and other hidden tax. In our case, that chain of contribution to the Alberta economy and community would have slowed down immeasurably in 1985 and would have come to an abrupt halt with my heart attack in 1993 without the immediate intervention of the cardiac team at the Grey Nuns Hospital. 
Subsequent interventions by the cardiologists and the surgeons at the Royal Alexandra Hospital, the CK Hui Heart Center, the University Hospital, and later at the Mazankowski Alberta Heart Institute has enabled us to continue contributing to the Canadian and the Albertan fabric, to the economic cycle, and to the Albertan community while maintaining our quality of life. My personal example, says George, can be mirrored by countless other Albertans. So, Premier, Minister, why are you so adamant that we lower our standards in medical and healthcare by demeaning our medical profession, by reducing their salaries, thus reducing their effectiveness? Can you not see that there is a multiplier effect to maintaining and expanding the best and the brightest in Alberta? Why do you not want to keep and or attract the best and brightest to Alberta? Why do you not want our doctors to be the highest paid in Canada? Do you not want the best for the citizens of Alberta? And George signs personally on behalf of he and his wife, Vera. It's another firsthand perspective. It's another opinion. It's another take on what is a complicated process, putting that budget together. Politicians may answer that question cut and dried very simply. Why do we not want doctors to be the highest paid in the province? Because our spending's out of control and we got to bring our spending into balance. That might be the quick cut and dried response. But is that a sufficient response to you? Is that the top priority right now? What a great question it was, I think, from Ben, one of our community members yesterday that asked Trevor Toom via me, why are we even obsessed with balancing the budget right now? Does that make sense? Is that intuitive right now? If you missed that conversation with Dr. Trevor Toom and Ted Curry yesterday, you can find it, of course, by subscribing to our YouTube channel, by subscribing to our podcast. And of course, we'll be talking about Alberta's budget. It's going to be a tough one tomorrow and most specifically on Friday, as we'll have had more time to actually review the document itself and determine what it means for you and your fellow Albertans, your fellow Canadians. These conversations are presented by teams like the family-owned and operated group at Local Waste Services. You know, Local Waste does a ton of great stuff uh, when it comes to dealing with businesses, both small and large, and they want to compete for your business. So right now, if you're evaluating how your waste management is being done, your garbage, your recycling, the team at Local Waste would love to hear from you. You can give them a call anytime. Just follow the link at localwaste.ca or of course the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Also wanted to remind you that the team at Alta Moving and Storage does a great job and has done for a number of years as a locally owned and operated moving and storage provider. The services they provide include these pod style moving containers. This is where moving is going as the stress is as much as possible taken out of the process. The team at Alta Moving and Storage wants to find the solution that works for you. And that may include short and long-term storage. Of course, that's their wheelhouse. You can find them at altastorage.ca. And again, find more information about what they do on the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Tomorrow is going to be a great show. If you've noticed that there's something different about the butter that you're cooking or baking with, you're not alone. There's a story here. So much so that they're talking about Canadian butter on the BBC. Julie Van Rosendahl will join me. And again, on Friday, our budget roundtable coming up right here on Real Talk, your home for meaningful conversations. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 8.30 Mountain Time. Mountain Time.